This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. Well, I've been all over Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee Show, College Game Day on ESPN. And you've heard me for the last couple of days railing about Pat McAfee being a bully. Now, for full disclosure, I'm in the opinion business. I'm not here to say that you shouldn't have an opinion, Pat McAfee. But if you're going to bring your opinion and start throwing shade or haymakers even at the Washington State fan base and the Cougars and Oregon State by extension, you shouldn't be surprised when they try to punch back. Fans at Washington State upset at McAfee have been uh, have been loud. I actually think the exposure for Washington State, if you think about it, you can wave the flag all you want on College Game Day show, but actually having Pat McAfee turn you into a martyr? Come on. What's the value of that? I, I even had some Washington State fans today, and I wrote all about McAfee, who is uh, regressed to being a bully. I wrote all about him today at johnconzano.com, and I got a lot of response from Washington State fans, Oregon State fans, even casual observers who think he's out of line. But some of the Washington State fans even said, hey, keep it down. He's bringing a lot of attention to Washington State by being such an idiot. If you think about it, uh, the platform of College Game Day, the platform of ESPN, the glow of ESPN, it's worth something. It's worth. It's why the linear programming was so valuable when it came to media rights discussions in the Pac-12 conference. It's not just the football games being on Fox or CBS or ESPN or ABC. It's that you get the glow of the shoulder programming with the big noon kickoff and the and the show that goes on before uh, as part of the Fox pregame show. And you get the glow of ESPN's shoulder programming as it pertains to the college game day experience. And uh, later in the season, when the rankings are released, that little uh, you know reveal show that they do becomes really important when it comes to the Pac-12 conference and the Big Ten and the SEC. Uh, Pat McAfee doubled down earlier this week. After a couple of weekends ago, we talked about Lee Corso, 88 years old. Bless the guy. Former coach up up there on game day, still trying to get it done. He's become kind of the 
uh, semi-mascot of the show, and I mean that with all due respect. He's an elder statesman. He's up there. Uh, it's Lee Corso. He's putting on the mascot's hat, and he's making a pick as part of the panel, and everybody loves that, or most people love it. But Washington State didn't love it when Lee Corso made Washington State the butt of a joke, and nor should they love it. Pat McAfee was watching all the criticism of Lee Corso and the criticism of Kirk Herbstreet and did what I think a lot of grandstanding bullies do on Monday when he went public on his own show and took shots at Washington State and defended Lee Corso and Kirk Herbstreet and admitted that he essentially was talking trash because he really wasn't involved in the direct confrontation. It was Lee Corso, it was Kirk Herbstreet, it was Ryan Leaf on social media. And here came Pat McAfee sort of in interjecting himself into the conversation like, uh, like somebody who, uh, you know, is an upstager, often does. And I wrote about that today at johnconzano.com. A lot of other people have criticized him. Brock Heward has, uh, you know, tweeted at him. Ryan Leaf was upset with it. Uh, Pat McAfee made an apology today i'm gonna let you hear it here he is apologizing to washington state fans but through learning why they were so upset about lee corso's joke about them they think their football program is going to be gone after this year i had no idea that that was Whoa. an actual fear that is what they are actually i think they're very very worried because oregon state and washington state are the only ones that haven't had a home since i Blame my naivety. Is that a word? Yeah, naivete. Naivete, whatever it is. I didn't even think about that being the case. Like, hey, you got a great football team. Your fan base, obviously, very passionate. I've been seeing that in there. They seem to believe that there's a chance their football program is going to be, like, they're not going to exist anymore. Now, is that Lee Corso's fault for making a joke? Is that Game Day who's put the wazoo flag up there for 20 years' fault? Or is that potentially AD President Commissioner's fault? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, not the fans' fault. So I would like to let the Washington State fans that I have heard you, what you have said, I'm sticking up for my guys. We'll do that to the day I'm in an actual coffin. I thought you guys sounded like ingrates the way you were attacking Lee. But the only reason they were doing that is because they legitimately think that there's a chance that they don't have a program anymore. So I would like to propose this. Hey, Oregon State wazoo. Let's get to the Big 12. Yes, seriously. Come into the Big 12. There has to be some conference that would like these two teams to join them. I didn't even think about thinking about them not existing anymore, but that's where their fans are right now. That never even crossed my mind. So I would like to apologize for potentially feeding to the narrative that you guys aren't going to exist, but that is not how I view it at all. you got a good football team, great fan base. 2023, somebody is going to bring you in. I just didn't appreciate you attacking 88-year-old man Kirk Herbstreet mm-hmm. and game day that has put your team over forever, so I apologize for that to the Wazoo fan. That's Pat McAfee speaking on his show. Now, look, 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 here's the thing. I'm almost more offended in one way with this apology because... This is the kind of reaction he should have had a couple of weekends ago when Lee Corso, 88 years old, again, bless him, got up on the game day panel and made the joke about Washington State and Oregon State's game being the nobody wants us bowl or the nobody watches us bowl, depending on how you heard it. Uh, you know, this this should have been the refrain then instead of all the yucking and the laughing and the jeering and then the subsequent uh you know, uh, anger when people got upset at the joke. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Lee Corso can get up on that panel 
And he's entitled to say whatever it is that he wants to say. Pat McAfee can say whatever it is that he wants to say. Kirk Herbstreet can say whatever it is he wants to say. It's America, right? It's a, it's a land of the free and the home of the brave. You can get up there and you can say whatever it is that you want. But you had better be ready if you're going to throw punches, and the jokes are punches, at Washington State. You better be ready to take some back yourself. I don't blame Jake Dickert, the Washington State coach, for being mad at the fact that people are making fun of Washington State and Oregon State and the Pac-2 as part of college game day. And again, it plays to me like schoolyard bullies when you're sitting up there on the ESPN platform and you're uh, laughing and jeering at the two programs that have been left behind. And I think Washington State and Oregon State largely have emerged as empathetic figures in this drama. Like, everybody can look at what is happening to them and go, hey, this is caused not by any doing of Oregon State and Washington State. This terrible outcome is being caused by the fact that in 1860, the uh, federal uh, legislators passed a land-grant act that said, hey, we're going to give, you know, 30,000 acres in every state uh, to, for every state in the country to create universities, and we're going to do this in agricultural communities, and we're going to make agriculture and engineering the focus. Okay, get about it. And so what happens? Clemson pops up. University of Georgia pops up. Florida pops up. Ohio State pops up. Guess who else popped up? Washington State and Oregon State. When you look at the land-grant universities from that grant that was given in 1862, These universities popped up in places like Athens, Georgia, and Columbus, Ohio, and Pullman, Washington, and Corvallis, Oregon. And guess what? It was by bleeping design that they were placed in small towns, in agricultural-based communities. That was the intention of the land-grant universities. They created college towns across America. Now, I wrote this today, but you could get in a time machine, And you could go back to the 1800s, and you could say, hey, hold up here. Probably not the best idea to put this university in Pullman or Corvallis, because if you do that, come 2023, there's this thing called college football, which, you know, is barely being played anywhere right now in the late 1800s. But this is going to be a big deal. And there's this thing called television. You you have no idea what we're talking about, but it's largely going to revolve around major cities, media markets. I'll explain what that is later. And, uh, you know, these things are going to matter. So maybe instead of putting a university in eastern Washington and putting a university, you know, that far away from Portland, maybe you move it a little closer, and that way you can get credit for the media market and you could create something that doesn't kill these two schools that were founded in the eight, late 1800s. You know, but nobody was thinking that way back in 1862 or 1870 or even 1890. Nobody was thinking that way. And so, you know, for, for me, like, I like that Pat McAfee is trying to be more self-aware. I, I'm, I'm cringing at the idea that somebody who's on a national show, the level that Pat McAfee's on, didn't know the plight of the Pac-2 conference and how many weeks did it take him to to look into it? Like, you know, did it take him getting criticized on social media and other places for him to go, oh, well, maybe I should look into why these people are upset at me? I think it's a little bit ridiculous. Like, 
you know, I, I expect better of everybody who's on that show. I'm just like, whoa, you had no idea that Oregon State and Washington State are waking up every day drowning in anxiety, drowning in the idea that uh, the fear that uh, they're not only going to not exist in a football manner, but worse yet, they'll be relegated to the Mountain West Conference or they're, they're, they're going to fall off the map despite the fact that they're ranked programs, despite the fact that they get television viewership at rates that the Big 12 teams don't get. You're, you know, you don't understand that, and you're on that show? Like, I'm glad he's come to that realization, but the disconnect there goes beyond ignorance. I think it's irresponsible. You know, I like that he said that he was sorry. I like that he apologized. I even like the fact that he's saying, hey, his... The reason that he got upset was that he's defending his guys. Like, I get that. There's some loyalty in that from Pat McAfee. Hey, I'm defending my team. He's a team player. He's a football player. He played at West Virginia, played in the NFL with the Colts. He understands the idea of protecting the locker room. So he's protecting Kurt Herbstreet. He's protecting Lee Corso. He's protecting his employer. College, you know, game day. He's saying, you know, this is these are my guys. But does he not understand the irony in that, that he attacked somebody else's guys, that by attacking Washington State and by extension Oregon State, he, what he's really doing is he's attacking those fan bases, he's attacking those universities. Lee Corso's joke is an attack. Kirk Herbstreet's defense of that joke is an attack. And then does he not understand the right of Washington State fans, Oregon State fans, and hell, casual observers who give a rip about college football? protecting and defending their guys? See, that's what this is really about, isn't it? Like Washington State and Oregon State going, hey, man, we just want to matter. We figure if this were a merit-based system that, you know, we would be included. I love that he arrives ultimately at the uh, viewpoint of, hey, let's get him in the Big 12 Conference. That would be a good solution. It's not a great one. It's a good one, though. If the Big 12 would be interested in more teams in the Pacific time zone and some outlying uh, you know, trips to Pullman and Corvallis. But again, I'll go back to 1862. You know, you got a land-grant act that the federal government passed that said, hey, we're going to invest not just in big markets. We're going to invest in America. The whole land-grant university concept was built on the idea that, hey, we're going to plop down these universities in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to make agriculture, and we're going to make mechanical engineering. We're going to make these the primary focuses of those universities. And guess what happened? The country was better for it. America got fed. Agricultural developments happened. Uh, advances in fertilizer and you know growing food for the country and mechanical engineering, they all happened because of places like Georgia and Florida and Ohio State and Purdue and you know Washington State and Oregon State and others, Iowa State. And I, I was going down the list today. My mind was blown when I looked at like 1862 and what happened. Every state got the opportunity to, to pop up, you know, hey, federal government's giving you 30,000 acres. Go, go get it done. Those programs, not only, those schools not only got it done, they got it done in a way that positioned them well to matter in college football in the year 2023. And that Pat McAfee doesn't get it, he can't be alone. There has to be others out there who don't understand what is going on and don't understand the ramifications and impact of it. Because the truth is, Rutgers University, land-grant school. 
Iowa State, land-grant school. Purdue, same. Penn State, same. Ohio State, Georgia, Florida, they're all over the country. They're all great college towns. And when you threaten Pullman, Washington, and you threaten Corvallis, Oregon, you might as well be threatening the fabric of America. we got a great show for you today. We've got guests like Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach. He'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to talk about the Blazers with Sean Hyken in the 4 o'clock hour. I had a conversation with Rick Neuheisel today. John Wilner and I did, and we had an in-depth conversation about the quarterbacks in the Pac-12. I'm going to play about five minutes of Neuheisel talking about Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. and Shador Sanders and DJ Uyunglele and Cam Ward. Fascinating talk with Rick Neuheisel. You'll hear it on today's show. Stephen, what did you make of Pat McAfee's apology? Do you count it as an apology? I'll take it. I mean, yeah, it was an apology, but if I was grading it on a scale of one to ten, it's about a four, four and a half. Like, yes, he apologized at the very end, but there are a lot of buts in there. It was, but you guys came after me, but the Wazoo fans said this, said that. I'm with you. He should know better, and he should know the fact that Washington State, Oregon State have been, you know, quote-unquote left out and in the Pac-2 by themselves. He needs to have more awareness of that. So, yeah, I will take it that he actually apologized, but he also doubled down on it earlier in the week. He also had a lot of buts. I will give him credit, though, because like you said, he's a team player. He's the new guy on game day. He's going to back those guys. I do respect that, but I don't know, John. There's just something about it that said, I'm apologizing, but I'm not really apologizing to me. It was a little... I don't know, it was a little non-genuine to me, but you know what? Again, I, I'll take it more than anything because I wasn't expecting an apology at all. So to get something, I guess I'll take that. I, I think you take the apology. I always listen. I, you know, what I want to hear is I apologize or I'm sorry. He, he got there eventually. But the thing that blew my mind was him saying essentially, like he's talking on this show going, hey, the thing they're actually upset about and then he says the thing that we all know, like, is the obvious thing. Like, how does he like, not know that? How like, does he I, not know that? It's hard for me to believe that, John. And so it's almost like it was an excuse to me, like, oh, I'm playing the, I don't know, I'm naive. I didn't know what to think. I'm new on college game day. Well, no, you should know. This was the biggest talk in the summertime of conferences realigning and things like that. I, I feel like him at West, you know, he always wants West Virginia to be represented. I think you should be lucky that they're in the Big 12. Like, they're not in the big town. They're in Morgantown, West Virginia. I mean, I don't know, John. I just... I'll take it because I didn't expect an apology, but I didn't feel like it was a wholehearted apology. I will take it. All right, we've got coming up, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the quarterbacks in the Pac-12. Rick Neuheisel, Talking QBs, is coming up next. Pat McAfee, if you want to read my take on him, you go to johnconzano.com. I wrote all about it. I think he's a schoolyard bully. I, and I think there's part of this. Like I, I wrote about this anecdote that happened early in Marlon Brando's career as an actor. There are people, there are certain people who are upstagers. You have an upstager in your friend group. I have an upstager in my friend group. Pat McAfee is an upstager on the College Game Day crew. Watch him during the, uh, during the week and, you know, weekend uh, broadcast. You watch him as Kirk Herbstreet is talking and Lee Corso is talking and the guest picker is talking. Pat McAfee has to be the loudest person in the room. He's interrupting. He's... He's, uh, you know, cutting to the front of the line. You, you just watch him. He's an upstager. Marlon Brando was an upstager. You know, it, you know, it's neither, you know, just as long as we're all aware. Like, Marlon Brando was the same way. He was a fantastic uh, actor, maybe one of the greatest actors of all time, probably. And Pat McAfee can still be good at his job, but he's definitely an upstager. 
And I, I wrote about this anecdote with Marlon Brando. You know, he's on stage early in his career. There's a theater production going on, and there's this uh, this part of the play he was in where somebody else gets kind of a, um, uh, you know, they get a uh, long, drawn-out sort of monologue. And as that's going on, Brando gets so upset that he's not getting the spotlight that he unzips his pants and he urinates on the stage. Like, you know, there's there's a line that, that, that an upstager crosses where we all have to go, hey, that's too much. Marlon Brando got removed from the play. That was early in his career. Maybe he learned something from it. Pat McAfee essentially did the same thing. He's pissing all over Oregon State and Washington State. He's now saying, hey, I didn't know they were nervous about not having, not being able to exist beyond this year. And he's talking to us like we are all finding this out for the first time. Like there's a tremendous amount of anxiety at Oregon State and Washington State. Do I think they're going to exist? Yes. Do I think they're going to play as the Pac-2 in 2024? Yes, I think that's what's going to happen. But I think beyond that, this is where McAfee's even wrong. He's saying they're looking for a home in 2023. Now, I think that you know that ship has sailed. They're really looking for a home for 2025, if you think about it, because I think they're going to play as a two. So get with it. Be better. Don't be a bully, because by picking on Washington State, you're not just picking on Washington State. You're picking on Oregon State. You're not just picking on those two. You're picking on every college in America that feels a little disenfranchised by the current system. And I got news for you. It's all but about eight or ten schools outside of Ohio State and Michigan and Oregon and Georgia and Alabama. Like, there's a lot of schools out there that feel like they have been marginalized by college football and the system. And if Pat McAfee doesn't realize that, he better get with it. Leave it here. I do a podcast with John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, you can get that podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get a podcast. Uh, I don't need to tell you that, do I? Do but we do uh, we do about a podcast episode a week, and it generally revolves around the Pac-12 conference or uh, somebody in college football. Like we've had Great Sankey on the show, the SEC commissioner uh, George Kliafkoff, the Pac-2 commissioner. Uh, we've had uh, Brett Yormark of the Big 12 Conference, the commissioner there on the show, Oliver Luck and some others. Uh, we've done about 71 episodes, I think. Episode 71 had a fun guest, Rick Neuheisel, the most Pac-12 guy ever. If you think about it, Neuheisel grew up in Tempe. He attended UCLA as a player, as an athlete, as a student. He went to USC for his law school while coaching at UCLA. He became a Pac-12 coach at multiple stops, worked on the Pac-12 network. Well, he joined us today for an episode that was fantastic. And part of the conversation revolved around quarterbacks. I think a big chunk of it did. And I want you to hear a couple of things. I'm going to play a couple of clips from that podcast and then talk about them a little bit. But first and foremost, DJ Uyunglele. I asked Rick Neuheisel, what he sees in DJ, because I'm struggling right now in watching DJ on the field in that he looks a little clunky. It looks like he doesn't quite trust that the play's going to be there. He waits to see the receiver. He's not throwing guys open, so to speak. He's waiting until they're open before he throws the ball. So I asked Neuheisel, what's going on with DJ? Like, what do you see? Now, keep in mind, he's a quarterback guy, former quarterback himself, former head coach who specialized in quarterbacks, Here's Rick Neuheisel talking about DJU at Oregon State. I see a guy that 
is kind of a relief pitcher rather than a starting pitcher, which means that he comes into the game and he's a fastball guy and he can, you know, get you out with fast strikes and all that stuff. I do not know that he has all the throws, the ability just to throw kids open, the ability to uh, drop it over something like a Joe Burrow can, uh, you know, it's just the soft touch that just drops the teardrop throw, if you will. I, I don't see all of that in his repertoire. So if I were building an offense with a DJ and as big and as powerful as he is, I would build it like they built it for the Florida uh, Gators when Tebow was there. He'd be a power runner inside. He'd be, you better pack the box, and then I'm going to build some play-action passes that are down the field that give us chances to throw that fastball or throw that deep ball because when his shoulders turn, it's the same as a fastball. But when you don't get the chance to drop your back shoulder and still have to drop one over the top of a linebacker level, that doesn't seem natural for me watching him play. So I'd build play action and uh, shots down the field and then figure out how to use his big body as a, as another piece of the running game. And that seems to fit Jonathan Smith's offense anyway. There's Rick Neuheisel speaking on that podcast today about DJU. And I agree with his assessment. I'm seeing a guy that is limited in what he can do when you compare him to players like Michael Penix Jr., Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, right? I don't think those are fair comparisons because those are elite quarterbacks by college standards. And I think Jonathan Smith probably knows that once Aiden Childs matures to the point where he can make all those throws and he can read defenses, the, uh, you know, the, the game slows down for him enough that he can read the defense and make the plays, that Aiden Childs, is, I think, is going to be the better eventual starting quarterback in major college football. But he's not there yet, and so right now you have Oregon State trying to play action it, trying to use DJ in ways that DJ can handle I disagree a little bit with Neuheisel in that I've seen enough of DJ running the ball to know that he's not an attacker when he runs. For a guy who's 250 pounds, he's a passive runner, but I still think you can utilize it. Like Oregon State on its very first possession against Utah did a little quarterback inside trap where they just trap blocked it and DJ kind of cut back and got about a 12-yard gain. And I think it was a really smart use of DJ that sort of kept Utah's defense off kilter for maybe the next couple of series because they were going, okay, we, that, that's another element that we need to worry about. So I think you got still got a scheme and game plan for DJ to make him effective. But I think it's a really interesting assessment by Neuheisel. Now, we also asked him, this is a longer clip, but we also asked him about all the other quarterbacks in the Pac-12. Here's a chunk of what Neuheisel said as Wilner and I asked him to evaluate Michael Penix Jr., Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, what does he see happening with the quarterbacks? Yeah, and you know what they're doing? They're having fun. I mean, think about these careers. Think about Bo Nix's career at Auburn and the ups and the downs and, you know, the inconsistency and the questions that he's had to answer. And he comes out to Eugene, and he just gets to be one of the guys – on a team that has a bunch of good players and he's having a blast. I wouldn't be in a hurry to go to the NFL either. Michael Penix, exactly the same story. 
When he was with Kalen DeBoer at Indiana, things were really good. Then DeBoer leaves to go back to Fresno to be the head coach, and things have been topsy-turvy for him. Then he gets a chance to reunite with his old guy, and he's having a blast. Why would you leave, especially with all those receivers coming back? Uh, Cam Rising, when he gets back, you watch how much fun and how exciting Utah will be. They're going to have a blast. This is this is a fun league that with with all these quarterbacks and the relationships they have with their particular teams. They they're in no hurry to go to the NFL. If you are looking at the QBs you see right now in the conference, is there a player you'd want to have for a season, a game? Is there a difference to that answer when we talk about who the top guys are for a game versus a season? Well. And, and if you took the next thing to a career, okay, uh, for a game, you know, it's hard to deny the unbelievable talent that Caleb Williams deplay, displays every time out. I mean, he is a man amongst boys. He is vastly more mature in terms of his confidence than most people on the field, and he plays with that swagger. And Lincoln Riley somehow you know, empowers that it's been too many quarterbacks, whether it was Baker Mayfield, whether it was, uh, uh, Kyler Murray, uh, Jalen hurts, all those guys, he's empowered to go out there and play and play footloose, fancy free and be great, be the best player on the field. And certainly Caleb displays that. But if you go to a career, this kid at UCLA, Dante Moore. Now, I've only seen him on television, but my son tells me the guy is a phenom in practice in terms of the way he uh, just adapts to everything that's being taught, that he, you know, wears the the misfired throws. He he understands his miss, you know, the things that he's not doing well. But I think Dante Moore over the course of a career is going to be really, really special. Yeah, and for folks who don't know, Rick's Rick's son Jerry is on UCLA staff and is up close and personal. There's just a unique uh, awareness for him. Just the ability to – it's never too big for him, despite him being young and and fresh and and doing this all for the first time. If you could put on your NFL coach, offensive coordinator hat for a minute here, I would love to pick your brain on – what you see of these top guys at the next level and sure. which ones do you think are not, not, maybe not guaranteed first round picks or top 10 or whatever, which ones do you think are, you know, legitimate multi-year starters, which ones, you know, may end up, may end up carrying the clipboard, just breaking them down for us. Let, let's start uh, upper left. Okay. What, what do you think of Penix when you, when you watch his film in the next level? You know, there's going to be a, a host of uh, NFL people that are going to say it's the system, right? That that something about the way he plays is more predicated towards downfield stuff. So he would be a guy most NFL people will say isn't the little ball guy, isn't a West Coast offense guy. He's a play action, get the ball down the field, big, big throw type of guy. And uh that's the kind of offense that I think that he'll fit into. I don't know if that's true or not. I've not been on the practice field with him. 
he does look like he just loves to drop balls in on those big over routes and all that kind of stuff. So that feels very much like, uh, you know, an L.A. Ram type of thing, you know, yeah. where you keep throwing those big overs and all that kind of stuff. Does he have the little ball? We'll have to wait and see if that accuracy holds up when you're just trying to hit your back foot and th- get it out of your hand. Uh, but but there's no question, as long as he stays healthy again for a second year in a row and dispels all that notion about he can't stay healthy, that he's going to be uh, one of those biology class frogs. They are going to dissect every piece of him because the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. About Cam Ward, who second is his second year at, at the Power 5 level, and I, so, I think he's made a ton of progress. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Listen, we always, when we're evaluating people and we're talking to other people who are evaluators as well, we use comps, right? You always look and say, this guy reminds me of this guy. And so you can kind of give gauge what you think the ceiling is for some particular player. When I watch Cam Ward, I see Deshaun Watson. I see a guy that just can put the team on his shoulders and make plays over and over again, whether it's required with his legs, whether it's required of its arm. Think about Deshaun Watson at Clemson and how many times in those great games with Alabama for the national championship, Deshaun Watson got an empty and was the running back, was the quarterback, was the hero. I mean, over and over again. And I think Cam Ward has some of the same attributes, and that's why I would be very, very interested in studying everything there is to study about Cam Ward, knowing everything there is about his personality, what kind of leader he is, but it looks like he's the the real deal. There's Rick Neuheisel talking about the QBs. Uh, Look, I I think he's right on the money, and I think it's just interesting to hear him talk about Penix and to hear him steer the conversation into young Dante Moore as he's talking about Caleb Williams and Michael Penix Jr. He eventually got to Bo Nix and some others. I'll talk more about that coming up. And we've got some Punch It audio still ahead. You're going to hear from a variety of uh, coaches, including Kalen DeBoer, and uh, also uh, a whole bunch of audio from around the world that will catch you up on what's going on in sports today. How about the Mariners, by the way? Trying to sell 54% as successful? Is the fan base buying it? I'll tell you what I think about that coming up. I loved hearing Neuheisel talk about the QBs. I don't know. Steven, what would you think of that? Love it. Uh, I think Neuheisel, you know, he was always one of the best coaches in America when he was coaching. And some high praise, I thought, for Cam Ward. You know, comparison yes. to Deshaun Watson. I, I know. I hadn't mean, thought, thought about that, but, I mean, I can see it. Like, the improvement he has shown so far this season has been great. I don't, I don't know, though. Deshaun Watson seems pretty high praise for that guy. I had the same reaction because I thought to myself, gosh, you're really just saying Cam Ward, a guy who we thought was good last year, but but didn't kind of delve into the great, uh, you know, as you as a descriptor, he was good. You know, this year he looks better. And some of that is his coordinator, but some of it is that Cam's running around, improvising, making plays, and sometimes... Uh, as Rick Neuheisel would tell you, the best play, you know, and Patrick Mahomes certainly example of this, is the play you're not calling that the quarterback just makes. And Cam Ward is making some of those plays this year. So keep an eye on Cam Ward in Washington State at UCLA on Saturday. We'll get into our picks later in the show. Uh, we're going to play Punch It Audio. we got great sound here. Giddy up. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. 
Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Jerry DePoto, your general manager of your Seattle Mariners. I think he put his foot in his mouth today, but you tell me. He's talking about the philosophical mission of the organization. Here's DePoto, punch it. If you go back and you look in a decade, those teams that win 54% of the time always wind up in the postseason, and they more often than not wind up in World Series. Now, so there's your, your bigger picture process. Nobody wants to hear the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time because sometimes 54% is, is some, one year you're going to win 60%, another year you're going to win 50%. You know, it's whatever it is. But over time, that type of mindset gets you there. If what you're doing is focusing year to year on what do we have to do to win the World Series this year? You might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor and <laughs> asking for their patience to win the World Series while we continue to build a sustainably good roster. I told you yesterday, I alluded to this. Oregon State had a model years ago. Six wins, bowl eligibility. In fact, Mike Riley's contract was built around that exact model. Get six wins, you get another year on your contract. A lot of us viewed six and six as mediocrity, and justifiably so. But Oregon State said, hmm, the formula is, if we get to a bowl game, any bowl game, we renew season tickets. It feels like the Mariners are in that same position. And for DePoto to say the quiet part out loud, wow. If I'm a Mariners fan... And this went viral. You know, Mariners fans all started saying 54%. I'll pay 54% of what you charge for beers. I'll get the number 54 on the back of my Mariners jersey. Is DePoto wrong to say it out loud, Stephen? I mean, if that's the mission, try to get to 54%. Try to win 88 games a year. Yes, he is wrong for saying it because there's no way the fan base is going to take that positively. Because the goal for the fan base is never hey, I want to win 54% of my games. The goal of the fan base is going to be, I want to make the playoffs. I want to you know, win playoff series. We're trying to win the World Series. It's never to be like, you know what? We're going to win one out of two games, basically, and be happy with it. So, yes, I think it's his fault for saying that. Now, I, in theory, his theory is correct. Like, get to the postseason, and by the most part, you do that. You win 54 55% of the games. You're going to have a chance, but... I don't know. I think that's a bad play there. Bad PR play by Jerry DePoto to play that and then to say, yup, we're doing you a favor by trying to win these games. I think he went a little too aggressive uh, in his take there. Such a thing as TMI as it pertains to postseason news conferences. Drew Holiday. He's thanking Joe Cronin, the thing that Damian Lillard wouldn't do, for trading him to a contender. Here's Drew Holiday whose era in Portland lasted, oh, about 36 hours. Punch up. Yeah, I think Portland, um, bless me, did a great job. Joe Cronin did a great job of communicating with me on what I wanted and uh, how to proceed. Um, did a great job of uh, putting me in a place that uh, I get a chance to possibly win another one, which is super important to me. But um, working with them was very easy, very seamless, and, and 
made all this possible. Gosh, so different. Does Drew Holiday win a title before Damian Lillard? That's a great question. Uh, I would go no. I think Milwaukee's still the better team over Boston, but I think it's a great addition by Boston to get Drew Holiday, you know, kind of match what the or what the Bucks did to get Dame. And it is interesting, John, you know, throughout this whole trade process, we talked about, you know, I, I always compared it to like a four-quarter game, and it seemed like it was tied, and Joe Cronin seems like he just completely won the fourth quarter. He outclutched Dame in the fourth quarter, and now he's looking great because to hear things like that, after all the talk of how he you know, mistreated the Dame situation, Dame doesn't thank him. And the goodbye note thanks Jody Allen. I don't know. I think Joe Cronin is coming off looking good, getting this haul back. And now Drew Holiday saying they're a blessing to work with. Seems like Joe Cronin's winning this trade out of everybody. I didn't get a thank you either from Dame. Oh, wait. I wasn't looking for one. Well, there I mean, was media thank yous, yeah. John. You weren't in there. I didn't get one. You know, be, uh, you know what? It, and that's okay. I, I, I wouldn't want a media thank you from a star player is leaving town. I'm not in it for that. But I think Joe Cronin, does he laugh last here? I still think even if Drew Holiday ends up like guarding Damian Lillard in the playoffs and Drew Holiday and the Boston Celtics beat the Bucks and advance in the Eastern Conference to either the NBA Finals or wherever they, uh, whatever the series nets, um, Joe Cronin's still got a really hard job in Portland. And... I don't know that I can say that Joe Cronin's going to get the last laugh until I know if he has a job like in two years or if he's just the right now guy who's here to manage the Blazers in the current predicament they find themselves in. Rick Adelman gets into the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame. Here he is saying what it means to him. Punch it. Well, it's, it's, it's great. It really is great. I mean, I came back here, started coaching here. Uh, Oregon's been our home, basically. All our kids are here but one. So it's, uh, it's a real treat. It's a real honor. He goes into the Hall of Fame, along with others, including Mike Riley, former Oregon State coach. Big-time class. Also means uh, that he's getting in there with... Uh, Terry Porter, Larry Steele, the other guys he gets to see as the, uh, at the, at the uh, Hall of Fame speech and the induction ceremony. Rick Adelman deserves to be in there. I'm trying to think of the coaches now. Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith. Kelly Graves, Oregon women's basketball coach. Scott Ruick, Wayne Tinkle, Dana Altman. Who is the most likely to be an Oregon Sports Hall of Fame inductee? Probably Kelly Graves or Jonathan Smith, I would say. Jonathan Smith's a good story. Got real ties to the state of Oregon. That, that's Dana, why I picked him. Dana Holman's done more, but I don't know if the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame is going to get around to recognizing him sooner than Kelly Graves or Jonathan Smith. I'm trying to think who else would be on that list. Pat Casey's got to get in there, even though he's not coaching Oregon State. Yeah, I was looking up if he was yeah. in the Hall of Fame yet, because he'd be the obvious choice, right? Yeah, I think th there might not be a better story, success story, in state history than Pat Casey, of like an Oregon-born kid who goes on to coach Oregon State to multiple college, multiple college World Series championships. 
Moving on. Joel Klatt says the Pac-12 is better than anything around. Punch it. The Pac-12 is the best conference in college football. It is the deepest and and it's the best. And when, when I'm starting to look at now the way the first month of the season played out, what these teams are, and then now what's in front of them, it makes me incredibly nervous for this conference. Why? Because the deepest and best conference in college football this season might eat itself up because there are some elite teams in the Pac-12. I'm really hoping we get one of them in the playoff. And, and we'll see if that comes to fruition. Last week was a reminder for all of us of, of why the Pac-12 is going to be so difficult over the course of the next two months. Okay, Think about what we had last week. We had a team in Utah who won an emotional game at home against UCLA. They've got to have a short week road game on the road on a Friday night against Oregon State, who's a really good football team who happened to lose a close game at Washington State. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. Utah gets beat. And you could almost see that coming, right? Before the year, you would have said to yourself, that's going to be a really tough game for Utah because the schedule does this conference no favors. And to be honest, it's somewhat unavoidable this year because of the amount of quality teams that this conference has. I agree with him to a certain extent. I still need to see more. I still need to know that there is a true college football playoff contender in the group. And again, I think there is, and it might be Oregon, it might be Washington, it might be someone else. Maybe it's Washington State. I don't know, but I need to see it. Can a Pac-12 team, I asked this yesterday if they could run the table. Let's say one does, and they lose in the Pac-12 title game. Can they still get into the college football playoff without a Pac-12 championship? Yes, and there's precedent for this. The SEC has twice got two teams into the CFP, both times. It was Alabama and Georgia. And and in one case, the exact scenario you had was laid out. Alabama and Georgia played each other in the SEC title game. The undefeated team that was ranked number one lost to the number three team, and both got in. So there is a scenario where, like, a one-loss Washington and an undefeated Oregon could meet in the, in the Pac-12 title game, and the one-loss team beats the other team. And, and beats them in a way that makes the playoff committee say, hey, you know what, I want to see both these teams in the playoff. It could happen. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Big scene at Rice-Eccles Stadium today as the NIL Collective for Utah, the Crimson Collective, get this, Stephen, they announced that they're giving every player on the football team a brand new Dodge Ram 1500 night edition package, a $60,000 truck. But the catch is... They're apparently not getting to keep it. They're getting a six-month lease on the vehicle. Better than nothing, I guess, right? Unpack that. You know, you tell me. (laughs) I mean, it's better than nothing, I guess, right? I mean, you know, driving in style while you're playing for the team. Free lunch is never free. I'm just... 
I saw, ooh, they're getting new trucks. And I saw the pictures, and I retweeted it. And then if you look at the fine print, it's basically a six-month rental car. It'll look good for the for TikTok and the Instagram. I mean, you know, the pictures. Nice truck. I, I'm not going to say I turned it down. Yeah, I mean, if you're in Utah, you're not saying, yeah, please don't give me that. I'll, I'll take it. You'll take that. Blazers coach Chauncey Billups, he says... Training camp has been fun. They're down in Santa Barbara. Yeah, it was it was fun, man. It was fun. Um, you know, the first day of training camp is always, you know, you get those jitters, man, and everybody's nervous. Nobody wants to mess up. But we, I mean, our enthusiasm was was fun, man. It was a lot of fun. Um, new guys started to pick some stuff up pretty quickly. Try to keep it very simple. You know, on the first day, it's a lot of teaching. But we also did quite a bit of playing today, too, uh, which is what I wanted to do. Um, but it was fun, man. It was a lot of fun. New era of Blazers basketball. Here to talk about it, our friend Sean Hyken, rosegardenreport.com. He covers the Blazers. Hyken is with us. Uh, was it fun for you? Well, I, we, I didn't actually get to watch the practice. They kind of only let us in at the end. But I will say the weather is a lot nicer out here than it is. There you go. See? Fun was had by all. Ch- Chauncey Billups, uh, sounds like he's selling fun, this new era. How weird did it feel to have a training camp without Damian Lillard being part of it? We got to get Sean Hyken back. He felt like, I, I kind of felt like he dropped off there. And then I thought maybe his phone just cut out for just a second, but then... He really did drop off. The weather's better, but maybe the phone connection not as good. <laughs> maybe in Santa maybe somebody at the phone company didn't like him taking a pot shot at the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> They're always listening, you John. know. They're always They're listening. like, nope. There, we're done. Done with that call. You're off. I had a I had a weird one with the phone company today. I got a, a an alert on my phone that said that you know they apologized for the service outage that had to do with uh, internet connectivity in the area and i was like well wait a minute are we not going to have a radio show so i called them up and they're like no no you're fine i was like well what's about the what's going on with this alert and they're like oh that was that just automatically fires and i was like don't do that to me i don't need that scare all right sean hyken is back the weather's good there but what how different is it to have a camp with no damian lillard it's different for sure it's it's you know, it's just, it's just been a different vibe. I don't even want to say different in a bad way necessarily because, you know, obviously everybody is, you know, in a way sad that, you know, that era is over. But it's the most, I'll, I'll put it this way, and I guess you can kind of expect this with just whenever there's a new era in this way and you move on from somebody who has been with the team and has had such an impact for so long as him. But it feels... I don't know. Everybody feels kind of refreshed because, like, whatever whatever way this goes, I don't know. I, mean, I don't think this team is going to win a lot of games, but I think everybody's kind of excited that it's going to be something different. Give me an idea when you say not going to win a lot of games. What range are we talking about for total wins for the upcoming NBA season? I the number I've been just kind of having as a ballpark is twenty seven, so probably twenty five thirty. I think, and I don't even think it's necessarily going to be because they do what they did last year and shut everybody down and like intentionally try to lose games and, and, and play G leaguers or, or what, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know if they're going to do that again. I think it's more just this team is so young and 
young teams very rarely are actually good and win a lot of games. And the West is also so deep that they might just organically lose enough games to by just playing all their guys and letting them all play through mistakes. They might still lose enough games to get the kind of draft pick that they want to get. So I would expect them to not, you know, I would, I would expect them to be probably like 12th, 13th in the West, something like that. That, that's kind of where I would have it going into the end of preseason, but obviously a whole lot can change. Is this the season where we get to find out what kind of coach Chauncey Billups is? Meaning, do we learn more about him when he's got a, a lineup that he gets to put together that doesn't have a star player? And, you know, do we learn about Chauncey? It, you kind of have to, right? Like, the, la- the last two years, there's always been stuff that, you know, you could point to and that they have pointed to of, like, you know, the first year he inherited a roster that was built for the way that Terry Stotts wanted to play, and then, you know, the Neal stuff happened two months into the his first season, and then Dane gets shut down with the ab surgery, and then they trade the, you know, half the team and CJ McCollum, and then last year there were a bunch of injuries, and the roster was still kind of not perfect. Now it's like, and I wrote this the other day after media day, the only player left on this team that Neil Olshay drafted or that ever played for Terry Stotts is Anthony Simons. Everybody else on the team is handpicked by Joe Cronin specifically for Chauncey Billups. So whether it works or not long term, it's going to be on the two of them. And so, yes, I, you know, whatever, you know, I, like I said, I don't think, you know, wins and losses are really going to be the point of the season because I don't think there's going to be a lot of wins. But in terms of establishing an identity, establishing a style and having, uh, you know, individual development of guys, yes, like that stuff is all going to be on Chauncey at this point to happen or not. Sean Hyken with us, rosegardenreport.com. Joe Cronin maybe goes into the summer with people wondering, what is he going to do? I think he comes out of the summer and into training camp looking like he did a pretty good job getting what he could get for Damian Lillard. How do you read it? I think people are very impressed with the way that he handled the whole Dame situation. You know, g- given given kind of the position that he was put in by Dame's representatives, where you know the trade request comes on July first, and then right away it you know it becomes clear the only place he wants to get traded to is Miami, and you know it doesn't matter that Joe and his staff didn't like really any of the stuff that Miami had, and you know he he talked to us in Las Vegas at Summer League on July 10th, and he basically said, you know, we're going to be patient and we're going to wait until we get the best deal for us, and you know you look at it, it took the whole three months, it basically took until you know less than a week before training camp started, but I think if you look at that final outcome, it's not you know in terms of, you know, you want to say, oh, they didn't do right by Dane because they didn't send him to the place he wanted to go. Yeah, they didn't send him to the place he wanted to go when the place he wanted to go was Miami, but they sent him to a pretty incredible basketball situation. He's talked all the time about how he only wants to be, have a chance to win a title, and now he gets to play with Giannis, and he's going to have a, as good a chance to win a title as he's ever had in his career. And Portland, I think, got back a lot more than they would have gotten in Miami. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, I, I realize, like, I know, you, you know, there was the stuff with the Chris Haynes story. And, you know, all, all the, all the, whenever there's a breakup of a relationship that lasted as long as this one did, there's always going to be stuff that, you know, comes out that both sides are saying about each other and some stuff that maybe everybody could have handled differently. But I think both Dane and the Blazers come out of this in a much better position than they were in before. Right now, a lot of hope and excitement around Scoot Henderson. What do you see when it comes to Scoot? Everyone loves him. I've just every I've, we've been talking to guys 
about him. And, you know, he seems just from a personality standpoint, I haven't really gotten a chance to really sit down and spend some real quality one-on-one time with him yet. But just from, like, the little time we've been able to be around him, seems like a great kid, great personality, very, you know, infectious. a very different type of energy from Damian Lillard. You know, I mean, Dame is, Dame is just a very, you know, he's a great guy, but he's a very, you know, low-key, kind of reserved guy. Scoot is very, I mean, maybe just because he's a kid, he's 19, but he's very, you know, high energy, just very, you know, infectious personality. That's the thing you ask, you, you ask anybody about him. They all say... I mean, as far as on-court stuff, everybody talks about how fast he is and just, you know, his athleticism and then also his unselfishness and his court vision, and people like playing with him. But also from a personality standpoint, he just seems like a kind of guy that, you know, people like being around, and I think fans are going to embrace him pretty quickly. Sean Hyken with us. The, you know, when we talk about best player on the team, you know, Damian Lillard has been that answer for a decade. Who's the best player right now? Is it Scoot, or it, do you do you defer to... Anthony Simons or, or someone else? Anthony Simons or Jeremy Grant is probably the, or maybe DeAndre Ayton. I don't know. Like it, it's, you can't you can't really come in and say, I mean unless except unless it's like Victor Wembanyama, you can't really come in and say a 19 year old kid who's never played in the NBA before is the best player on the team. I think if all goes according to plan, Scoot is going to become that guy pretty quickly. But I think you kind of have to defer to one of the more veteran guys on the team. And that, to me, you know, that would be Simons, Jeremy, or uh, Aiden at this point. When uh, I, I also think, you know, when you look at this team, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on making sure the pieces that they got for Damian Lillard uh, turn into assets. But some of this is draft-related. You mentioned DeAndre Aiden. He is saying he's going to turn over a new leaf. He's going to, you know, his motor is his emphasis. Um, you know, I, I, I know that people are going to be skeptical of that, but do you have confidence that Aiton can be a different kind of player, or are we going to be talking two years from now about him being a little bit of a dog and maybe his motor wasn't there? What do you, how do you read that? Uh, it's hard to say right now. I mean, every, right now all you can go on is what people are saying, and everybody's saying all the right things about how he's motivated and he – needed a fresh start after kind of the way things went in Phoenix. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how that looks in a couple of years. I think, obviously, the talent is there. He's been the starting center on a team that went to the finals, and he played very well in that finals. But then the two years since then, you know, you saw the way the playoffs went and, you know, some of the issues that he had with Monty Williams and with Chris Paul. So there's definitely some question marks there. But I think right, right now everybody's saying all the right things. I have no idea how the next couple of years are going to play out. But for right now, everybody it seems like everybody's on the same page about him. Joe Cronin's next move. What is it? Uh, I that's a good question. I think he he's. I I think they kind of want to take a breather for a little bit. As far as like it's this has just been such a whirlwind of a, a couple of weeks between getting the Dame trade hammered out and then you know immediately open up opening up a bidding war for the Drew Holiday piece of it and then getting the deal done with Boston. There's been a lot of talk about. Uh, potentially flipping Malcolm Brogdon to a contender for some more draft picks. But the sense that I've gotten from Joe, from Chauncey, and from Malcolm Brogdon, who we just got to talk to for the first time today because he just got in yesterday and took his physical, is that they want to keep him around at least for a little bit because this is such a young team. It's it's like basically all kids. You need to have at least one or two adults on the team. You can't have the whole team be have no (laughs) veterans. And so I think they want to – I mean, no. This is this is you, you. You laugh, but this is this is true. Like with a lot of these young teams, like this is something that Dame and Chauncey both complained about a lot last year. Was just that they were it was such an inexperienced team, and 
and you know there's so many because you have to have one or two veterans on the team that can kind of help because you, you can't just be like Chauncey is great at like teaching guys stuff and relating to guys as a former player but the coach can't be the only guy with a lot of NBA experience on the team you have to have a couple of guys that have been in the league for a few years and I think they feel like at least for the short term, Malcolm Brogdon can be the guy that fills that role. I mean, I think it's there's a decent chance that they do trade him before the deadline, but I don't think that's really imminent right now. I keep thinking about Shaden Sharp's playing time, his minutes. If you keep Malcolm Brogdon, does that affect Shaden Sharp? I don't think so, because I think that develop having him develop and having him you know become what they think he can be is a pretty big priority. I mean, you saw last year, let me on last year. It was a little. The team had a little bit different goals than uh, the team that they have this year. This year, everybody kind of knows it's a rebuilding situation, and you are really expecting them to make the playoffs. Last year, with Dame and with bringing in Jeremy Grant, everybody kind of thought, okay, the goal here is the playoffs and maybe more. And Shaden was still getting minutes from day one of the season. Now that they're in a rebuilding situation where he's one of the core pieces of it, I don't think they really have anything to worry about or he really has anything to worry about as far as like his minutes are going to get cut because Malcolm Brogdon is there. I think I, I, I'm, I'm expecting the starting backcourt to be uh, Scoot Henderson and Anthony Simons, but I think both uh, Shaden and Brogdon are, are going to get minutes. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's really the minutes crunch is really going to be an issue there. Sean Hyken, RoseGardenReport.com is with us. He's at training camp with the Blazers in Santa Barbara no Damian Lillard part of camp. Uh, I mentioned Scoot Henderson. Did, you know, he's got a lot of confidence, Sean. I, you know, you hear him talk, you hear, watch him play, and I, I think there's a guy who's going to be a star. I did worry a little bit in summer league when, you know, he has a shoulder thing. And, you know, maybe it's just because we've been through it in Portland. Do you have concerns about his durability, injuries, how he will hold up? If you've ever been around him up close, he is built. I mean, he's told us, but he's talked to us before about how he played football in high school and he was a running back. So he's a pretty solidly built guy. It's not. It's not. I don't think it's like a Derrick Rose situation where, like, you know, he he you know he's so small and skinny that like he, he you know he lands on on his foot wrong. And he's gonna like tear his ACL. I think I don't think that part of it is. And he's also the other thing about about Scoot is he's been playing against professionals for two years in the G League. So it's not like this is, you know, a huge adjustment. I'm obviously a talent level higher in the NBA than it is in the G League, but it's not, uh, I like, I, I don't think there's that, there are those sorts of concerns about, about scooting. From what I understand, that shoulder thing was just a minor thing and they held him out of summer league just to be on the safe side. But actually, and this is kind of, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen this. I've been covering the NBA for 10, 11 years, whatever it is. I don't think I've ever seen this. There are, they are in train. We're knock on wood. We're two days into training camp. There are no injuries of any kind. Everybody knocking on wood. Hold on, I'm not cutting him off. His phone company's cutting him off again. Check on him while I knock on wood. As he says, there are no injuries, and then suddenly his phone goes dead. So that was Steven, a very blazery answer I was right like, there. Wait a minute. Wait, where did he go? As he said, there are no injuries. Bonk. Um, you know, this morning my phone went off. It was the emergency uh, alert service. I don't know if you got one of those. Like every once in a while, you get a beep. Yeah, like it is, this, yeah. this is just a warning. I think it happened all at the same time for all of us. Uh, and it's, uh, I feel like Sean Hyken just just uh, did an emergency alert service. You said there are no injuries, and then you disappeared. So uh, yeah, that's the... they. That's that's it was, <laughs> it's actually me that just had an injury. No, but 
But no, as, as I was saying, uh, yeah, I don't know why I got I got cut off. We had that injury alert or that that emergency alert today on the phone. But anyway, yeah, like I have never, I don't know if I've ever seen at least personally covered whether it was here in Chicago where I used to be uh, a training camp where all of the players on the roster are fully healthy and fully participating, and there is no injury that you have to monitor at all. Like we'll see how long that lasts. Obviously, you know, it's a long season, long training camp. Something's going to come up, but. Especially when you consider that uh, both the two guys they just got from Boston, Malcolm Brogdon and uh, Robert Williams, have had pretty significant injury concerns throughout their career. And, you know, they both, they, we, I, we asked them both today when we met them for the first time how they are physically, and they said they're both at 100%. So at least as of right now, that part of it is all, it's all good so far. Sean Hyken, RoseGardenReport.com. All right, what else do you want to learn in training camp? What's left to learn about this team? I am very – we haven't gotten to talk to Shaden Sharp yet out here. I'm very curious how he looks going into his second training camp versus his first training camp because he was like he was such a mystery last year because he didn't actually play at Kentucky. And then he got hurt five minutes into his summer league debut, so we haven't really seen much from him. And then Chauncey was talking last year about how quickly he was picking things up. And then this year, Chauncey said yesterday that – it's just been light years ahead of this one of, of where he was last year. So I'm really curious about uh, that. And this is, somebody else, this is a little bit of a, like a lower profile thing, but uh, out of the non-scoot rookies, the guy that, I mean, Chauncey talked about him today, but also, you know, I talked to a couple other folks in the organization about him. And the guy that I've been hearing a lot of really good things about is Tumani Kamara, the second round pick that was a second round pick of the Suns and came over as one of the pieces in the Dane trade. I, I mean, he's a forward out of Dayton. He's a little bit of an older college player, but I, Started to hear some good things about him, so I'm real curious to see how he looks when he actually gets out there. Sean Hyken, I appreciate you, man. I'll, I'm going to cut you loose. Thank you. Yeah, good to talk to you, John. There he is. RoseGardenReport.com if you want to read Sean Hyken. Steven, some quick takeaways. What are you hoping to get out of this training camp? Uh, I think number one, and you and Sean touched on it right at the end there, uh, no injuries, right? I, you know, As a Blazer fan, that's kind of what you always expect is there's going to be some injuries, but uh, that's number one. Number two, it's just I'm so intrigued with Scoot Henderson because, you know, as Hyken said, he he played he's played professionally for two years. When he was 17, he was playing in the G League. He's been around pros. He he listens to Pooh Jetter, who's now on the Blazers uh, staff. Like this guy wants to learn and he wants to play. And, and I'm so intrigued with how he is. You know, the thing that I've been hearing about out of training camp, John, is that Scoot may be just a little too confident. And for me, that's wait, a good... Wait, 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 Too confident? That's a good thing. Such a thing? Gold, he had gold-plated stuff when he was in summer league on the luggage. Mm. Like, you know, because he's been a pro. He's a multimillionaire. He's already got that stuff, and he's kind of got the ego, and I like it. I like that he's the alpha leader. He wants to take leadership of this team. I, I'm very intrigued. So that's what I've been hearing, but, uh, you know, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's a good thing. So for me, it's injuries, and it's hearing all good things about Scoot Henderson. I can't get enough of that. I uh, I read a story one time that was written by an NBA agent, and it was about how NBA players end up broke. And the first thing was, NBA player gets rookie contract, gets drafted, gets gets the first paycheck, gets the signing bonus, whatever it was. What do they do first thing? They buy mom a house, right? Fulfill a dream, buying my mother a house. Second thing is, they buy their own house. Then they buy a nice car and jewelry then they go to training camp, which is where the rookies are right now. They arrive at training camp. They look around and they go, oh, I just have a nice car. I don't have a Maserati. Like, I don't have a one of 20 that are available. And then they go buy another car. 
in you know it's like three months into your uh, into your NBA existence. You haven't played a game yet, and suddenly you're in the hole for like I remember Zach Randolph as a rookie. Remember when he punched Reuben Patterson? He, he got fined for it. Zebo didn't have any money. Like he he was out of money. He was on the road with the team. And he was living off his per diem. You know, because he had blown all his money on jewelry and cars, and, you know, he wasn't thinking. So, uh, I hope a lot of confidence, gold-plated luggage. I hope Scoot's got a financial advisor in his corner. That's all I'm going to say. All right, leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio. We have so much to talk about. We have great sound. Still ahead, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. I want you here for it. Anna's in the studio, and I want to talk, uh, I want to unpack the plight of the Mariners here, because I think it speaks to a larger truth in corporate America, and frankly, it speaks to motivation. There's personal motivation, and there's organizational motivation. Like, for me, I host this radio show. This is uh, my domain, okay? I'm master of the domain here, right? And I... I can't control what happens outside of my three hours on the radio station, right? So I have to focus, much like a race car driver driving the car, on driving the car. I can't worry about the pit crew. I can't worry about the maintenance crew that's in charge of the track. I can't worry about, you know, the ticket prices and beer sales. I focus on driving the car for three hours a day on this show, right? That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Jerry DePoto is the general manager of the Seattle Mariners. He's focused on constructing the roster. But the Mariners internally have a business plan. They have a philosophy. And it doesn't line up with what players want and what fans want. Players are frustrated. Cal Rowley, player on the team, comes out. After the Mariners meltdown, don't make you know they don't make the push late in the season to be a playoff team. And Rally says, "Hey, basically, look at the teams that are making it. They're going for it. They are uh, chasing and signing a big free agent bat, or they're making a trade for a pitcher late in the year that puts them over the top." The Mariners didn't do that, and of course, Rally gets called in by his team. He gets told, hey, um, you need to change that messaging publicly. He comes out publicly, makes kind of an apology publicly for having those uh, thoughts. And now uh, General Manager Jerry DePoto is put in front of media. I played this clip earlier. I want to play it again. I told you yesterday that there was an organizational philosophy that's lurking in the background of whatever the Mariners are doing here. And Jerry DePoto pulled the curtain back on it in his news conference. If you go back and you look in a decade, those teams that win 54% of the time always wind up in the postseason, and they more often than not wind up in World Series. Now, so there's your, your bigger picture process. Nobody wants to hear the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time because sometimes 54% is, is some, one year you're going to win 60%, another year you're going to win 50%. You know, it's whatever it is. But over time, that type of mindset gets you there. If what you're doing is focusing year to year on what do we have to do to win the World Series this year, you might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. 
So we're actually doing the fan base a favor <laughs> and asking for their patience to win the World Series while we continue to build a sustainably good roster. When he says we're doing the fan base a favor, your jaw dropped. Ouch. He knew he said it when he said it because he went, huh, like, I can't believe I just said that. He's going to regret that one. Um, yeah, so he's asking the fans who are by nature impatient, but Mariners fans, by and large, very forgiving, have been very patient, have they not? They're forgiving. But I, I, I think if you're going to say that out loud, <laughs> why, you know, fans are going to go, well, why am I not paying 54% yes. of the ticket price? Yes. Why aren't your $12 beers only 54% of $12? Why are we paying 100% for your 54% product? You should be trying to go 162 and 0 is what you should be trying to do. Um, is Depoto, on one hand, I think he's insulting. On the other hand, I find it mildly refreshing that somebody's saying out loud right. what is actually being talked about behind closed doors. Right. So there is that, right? So we can we can applaud him in one sense for his authenticity, like he's just laying out, well, this is our corporate strategic plan. This is what our data reflects and here's where we're sort of headed, but like that's not branding wise, people want to know that they are gunning for the World Series, that they are aiming for the top and that's not what they want to hear from leadership of a team. And I disagree with him. Like, I think analytics can go too far. Mm -hmm. And it may be true that teams that win 54% of their games or 88 wins, more often than not, are right around the playoffs or they get into the playoffs or they have a puncher's chance in the playoffs. But, but you could also say that there are other factors that go into that, like, a lot of those teams are making moves late in the year mm -hmm. to acquire an extra pitcher, an extra bat at the trade deadline to make themselves better and go over the top. And but to, you know, it reminds me a little bit of what Oregon State did years ago, where they said, "Yeah, we know if we go six and six, that's the business model." Right. Okay, you may know that internally, but you probably shouldn't tell your fans that because your fans are going, wait a minute, we want to go to the Rose Bowl. Right. What are you talking about, six and six? I can feel like uh, I can feel the PR team for the Mariners oh, man. just hearing that and f losing their heads because you know that there's a PR team that's working all year long you know, to build toward the brand and to generate excitement. Like, his statement there, like if you were to create a motto for it, for what the Mariners are doing is, we're aiming for mediocrity because that at least keeps us in the conversation. Yeah. And that is, that's not what you want for a professional sports team. Well, who, who advises him to say that or did he just go off script, you think? He, that has to be off script. That has to. There's no, there's no one that had a conversation with him beforehand and said yes this would be a good idea today to talk about you know our strategic plan there was two things that happened in there and i want to stop i'm gonna play it again and i want to stop it and by the way they had a whole bunch of people who are mariners fans who had fun with this like jason puckett who hosts co-hosts the show that i join on kjr in seattle 
literally changed his name on Twitter to 54%. And other <laughs> other people <laughs> other people are going I, the other people find that very relatable because some people do wake up every day and go, you know, I'm not at my best today. Yeah. Am I at 54%? What am I at today? I'm just going to let you know, listen- John, I'm only going to give 54% uh, yeah. effort on your show now. <laughs> there you go. Okay, but listen, I'm going to I'm going to play this in segments. Those teams that win 54% of the time always wind up in the postseason, and they more often than not wind up in World Series. Okay, so he throws that fact out. And I don't doubt that there's validity to that because 54% is 88 wins. So he could have said, you know, teams that win 88 wins, teams that average 88 wins a season, you know, generally are right around the postseason and get into the playoffs and, you know, it's seven games over uh, – 500 but then he goes into this weird thing where he says one year you might win 60 percent and the next you might win 50 and then he kind of presents that as like the range of games yeah and you can hear him realizing that 54 percent is not right in the middle of that as he says it tell me if it's just me but let's listen to this as depoto talks about it you know so there's your your bigger picture process nobody wants to hear the goal this year is we're going to win 54 percent of the time because sometimes 54 percent is is some one year you're going to win 60 percent another year you're going to win 50 percent you know it's whatever it is you know but that's if you do 60 percent one year and 50 percent another year you're actually in that two-year range you're actually at 55 percent not well, 54 well had he said like 48 percent he would have been crushed <laughs> yeah, even more I know. but i still think he realized in that moment he was going okay that that's not i know what he's saying he's yes. saying like you know sometimes you overachieve we know what he's saying you underachieve okay and then he goes off script but over time that type of mindset gets you there. If what you're doing is focusing year to year on what do we have to do to win the World Series this year, you might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor. <laughs> and <laughs> when he says we're actually doing the fan base a favor, he gives this little is it a guffaw? <laughs> is it a <laughs> like I can't believe I said that. Like, what is he? I don't know. At? I honestly, you're giving him more credit there because I'm not sure he realizes fully what's just come out All of right. his mouth. I'm gonna play it again, but I think he does. Tell me. Because sometimes 54 percent is is some. One year you're gonna win 60 percent. Another year you're gonna win 50 percent. You know, it's whatever it is. But over time. That type of mindset gets you there. If what you're doing is focusing year to year on what do we have to do to win the World Series this year, you might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor (laughs) and asking for their patience to win the World Series while we continue to build a sustainably good roster. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor (laughs) and asking for their patience to win the World Series while we continue to build a sustainably good roster. You tell me. No, he realizes in that moment, like, he he realizes that it sounds a little ridiculous that we're doing the fans a favor but i don't think he realizes the full impact of what he's saying i think he's i I think (laughs) this is this news conference two years from now six months from now i don't know when jerry depoto gets fired (laughs) but it started 
Like the beginning of the end started in this news conference with that statement. Help me out here. Where are the Mariners at in the season? They're not having like a terrible, like no, they were they were a contender. Yeah, and they didn't make the postseason. And so you know, Major League Baseball's postseason starts, and you know they uh, oh they didn't like last year. They had a you know really fun season, and I think that was part of it. Where you know when you look at Last season versus this season, the expectation was, oh, they're going to take a step forward. They were right at 54% winning percentage this year. Yeah, it didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen. They no, ended it did up happen. 88. They got to exactly 54%, though, John. Yeah, but, I mean, they didn't. <laughs> He's spot on. They fall two games short of getting to the playoffs. That was a great but, season. But according, <laughs> but according to him, they hit the mark they're of mediocrity. Money. Oh, Confetti dropping. And I, mean, that's, I guess that's what's most offensive because that it's what people are gonna like chortle against because it's like, well, we made we hit our mark budget wise. We hit like we we were just good enough like to sort of be profitable and fill the stands and we got people to buy tickets, but we're we're not aiming for the best because we don't have to. We just kind of need to be in the conversation. I mean, he literally literally just said. We did exactly what we were supposed to do, and we had a good season, yet they didn't make the playoffs after coming off a season where they made the playoffs. Like, you said you had a good season, winning 54% of your games. That's just crazy that he would actually admit that. And and how does that make the fan feel who, you know, not everybody who goes to a professional sporting event and buys a ticket can just comfortably do it because this is like people's discretionary money that they are using to entertain themselves and their family like that's what is upsetting to me and i'm not even a huge mariners fan it's just sort of like this is my money on the line that i gave to you as a season ticket holder or a one-time ticket buyer and that that it it doesn't show gratitude to the fan no, it's offensive. It's a, I think it's actually offensive. But I think there are a lot of sports franchises out there that behind closed doors say such things. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago, this is maybe 15 years ago, I got a hold of the Blazers' internal plan. They have an internal goal-setting document that yeah. they put out. It's bound. It's in a folder. It's got a fancy cover on it, and it talks about their season ticket goals, their concession goals, the, every, every element of the franchise from hot dogs all the way to the roster and the payroll is covered. And they had a range of games that, hey, this is what we expect to win this year. It's kind of like their plan, their forecast mm-hmm. for the year. Yeah. President, general manager, scouts, everybody's involved in this, business side, basketball side, involved in it. And I can remember how underwhelming it was mm-hmm. because it wasn't we're going for an NBA title, period. That's the book. You know what I mean? It should, like, everybody, fans approach a season going, we want to win a championship. That's the plan. But the franchises often, I think, come into a season saying 54% would be a really nice year for us. 88 but- and 74 would be a nice year. And business owners know that. Like, I think we just talked recently about how, like, I've worked for news organizations where when the general manager got real, said, sometimes being number one isn't great because you're dealing with all of your competitors gunning at you. When it comes to sales, like, we're okay being number two in the ratings because that's good enough 
for us to sell and have a decent profit margin to keep the business operational. So I think there are business owners out there, small business owners out there, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like when you're realistic about it, you go, okay, we're okay being at this level because we can make profit and we can be functional. But that's not the yeah. message that you want a professional sports organization to be out there saying. Especially as you point out, if you're you're buying, you know, your ticket to get in to see the Mariners is eighty five dollars, and you're buying for a family of four, and you're paying for twelve dollar beers and eight dollar hot dogs and parking, right. and you're going, hey man. This is a reach for our family, but we're doing it because we love this team and we want to be part of the excitement of last year and this year, and we're going to make the playoffs. And then you hear Jerry Depoto, the GM, go, yeah, the goal, we made our goal, 88 and 74, baby. That's who I'm thinking of is the person who, like, this is a stretch for their family. And, you know, it's not easy for them to get to the game. This is a choice that they're making with what to do with their hard-earned money and it's, uh, it's not gratitude to the fan, to that fan. 503-417-7575. I want you to tell me about your expectations for your teams. What are the Ducks, the Beavers, and the Blazers in particular thinking about when it comes to their season goals? I'll tell you what I think they're thinking about, but I want to hear from you. What are your expectations for those teams? Do you want your teams to go for it, or do you relate to what Jerry Depoto is saying? Leave it here. I said years ago one time on this show as I was hosting it that I couldn't understand and I did not understand people who would say, oh, I mailed it in today. Like, I, that's foreign to me. And maybe, like, I, I'm not working in a factory setting, like on an assembly line, where maybe if you come in for work and you're just not feeling it, you can skate by. Maybe there's some accountability there for me because I am in a profession where if I do mail it in, everybody's going to know it, right? Everybody's going to know. They're going to be like, the show is terrible. He didn't have it. He was terrible in print. So I do not relate to that. It's foreign to me. And I had people call in and go, you're crazy. No person could ever. I'm not saying I'm at my best every day. And I'm not saying the show is great every day. And I'm not saying everything I write is fantastic. But I'm saying it ain't for lack of trying. It ain't for lack of trying. Is Jerry Depoto telling us that, He's just trying to hit 54%. Like, and you know, if he hits 55%, he would have been mad. You know? I don't know. What is that about? And what do you think if we could get behind the curtain at Oregon and Oregon State in football? What do you think the real company expectations would be for this season as it pertains to goal setting? Let's say Rob Mullins in his office with nobody looking is going, hey, if we win how many games, that's a successful year. Never want that public. What is he saying? Because I think Oregon knows if they win 10-plus games, that season ticket renewals will pace at a rate that is favorable to them, that gift-giving will keep coming in, and that they can continue to fund the program at the level that they're at. I think privately, Rob Mullins would say 10-2 and two is our goal. But he could never say that publicly. Publicly, he's going, hey, we want to go 12-0. and 0. We want to go to the playoff. They go to the playoff, yes. But I think for Oregon, it's 10 wins. 
And I think Oregon fans, that's why last season, Oregon fans, when they won 10, it wasn't good enough. I think Oregon internally was ecstatic because they went first year, Dan Lanning, 10 wins, good enough. Much in the, like, Rob Mullins would never get caught in a Derry DePoto moment. But I think it was 10 wins. And at Oregon State, I think it's lower. I think Oregon State probably went into this year going, look, it'd be great to win 10 wins, get 10 wins, be phenomenal to get to the, uh, to the conference championship game in Vegas. But uh, if we win eight plus, we can sell tickets. Internally, eight and four at Oregon State. Blazers, the over-under for this upcoming season is 29 wins. I hear a lot of people going, this team's going to win 33, this team's going to win 35. Sean Hyken came on earlier, he said 25 to 30. 27's the number. I'll bet you the Blazers internally are going, eh, the number doesn't really matter. We just need to show a little bit of enthusiasm, something we can sell into next year, rise with with us, so to speak, that motto that they trotted out a couple years ago, multiple years in a row, rise again. All of that, you know, they're just trying to win maybe 30. 30 would be a huge success for the Blazers. They'll never say that publicly. Anna, Stephen, what do you think of those three things? Um, I think you have a good handle on all of that. And I don't think that any team that has actually won a national championship or world championship, as they say in the NBA, um has said publicly well we're just shooting for this slow bar and wow we were really surprised we got here (laughs) like that's just not the branding of uh champions it's just not how it works yeah i agree uh with anna there and and the thing is about it i think you know when you talk about the ducks and you think ted wins is a good season and i agree with you it was a good season last year but a lot of duck fans were disappointed it it just kind of goes to show like, if they got that title, as Anna's saying, like, if they got a championship, I think 10 wins, they could be okay with it for the next couple seasons because they got their championship. But I think bef- until they get that title, every year that's not a college football championship will be somewhat of a disappointment for a lot of these fans. And you look at the Blazers, like, for me this season, the goal's got to be just be exciting, right? It's not even about the win total. So I think it's just it's so different in every sport and it's so different with every single team that, like, you, the DePoto statement, I think, works perfectly in baseball because it's every single day is 162 games. But if you were to say that in college football and say, you know what, we have to get nine wins, you would get even more crushed because it's just once a week. Every game matters. Everything is so under the microscope. Where in baseball, it's just like, oh, you know what, it's just a Tuesday against you know the Astros, and we'll throw that game out. It doesn't really count. I tell you, I called around to the ADs before the season started, and I said, how is your season ticket renewals going? Uh, I, nobody went, let me check. They knew within a half a percent. Mm-hmm. They were like, we're at 92.3%. We're at 95.8%. We're really? at 98%. They know this <laughs> off the top of their heads. It's their world. It's their love language. Josh is in Vancouver. Josh, go ahead. Hey, John. You know, I'm sitting here listening to DePoto's statement, and I'm thinking, that guy is Neil Olshay 2.0. Like, <laughs> so, it, it, winning 54% of your games, are you literally just managing a roster to get you to the playoffs every year for job security because I'm starting to feel like the Mariners players themselves and like, you ain't going for it, leadership. What are we doing here? 
So I, I thought that was very, very interesting position on him, and we might as well just go ahead and chalk him up to the Neil O'Shea 2.0. Thanks, John. Take more of your phone calls at 503-417-7575. The 5 at 5's coming up on the other side of a quick break. Plus, Jonathan Smith at 524. Wants you here for that as the Oregon State football coach joins us once a week. i got to ask him, who was mad about his let's milk the clock you know, gesture that he was making? And how did he play? charades as a kid like i gotta know where jonathan smith got all this and by the way has he ever milked a cow i think with his thumb and forefinger action he'd be great at it b f f t from the pack west center in downtown portland presented by high caliber millwrights here's john canzano with the bald-faced truth Anna's going to give us the five at five, five biggest stories going on in sports. I still want to hear from you as it pertains to the expectations that you have for your sports teams versus the expectations that your sports teams internally may have for themselves. Like, I actually think Oregon internally goes, hey, if we win 10 games... We, we're going to renew 98% of our tickets. We're going to get... Gift-giving is going to be great. I think Oregon State probably goes eight wins is the Mendoza line. we got to win eight plus. If we win nine or ten or eleven or twelve, it's great. They're not... It's not that they're not trying to do that. But I think they're going eight plus, big money for us. They're really trying to defend against like a five-win season. That would be a disaster, right? And Oregon, you you go four and eight or five and seven at Oregon, you're done. You get fired. So I do think internally, Jerry Depoto of the Mariners is sharing the, the Colonel's recipe for KFC. <laughs> you know what I mean? What if you found out that Colonel Sanders and KFC, their uh, their secret recipe? It's only six ingredients, not eleven. <laughs> what if you found out? It's you, only six. No, but what if you found out you had every one of those ingredients? <laughs> it's only six. Come on. But you it know, it's supposed to be eleven. What they, if they're only shooting at fifty-four percent? I got to be honest with you, Anna. Like one of the happiest times I have seen you in the last couple of years since yep. the pandemic mm-hmm. was one day you were you were craving KFC chicken. Yep. And I crave them many. I crave it many days. It's just I don't tell you. Yeah, you were craving a bucket of chicken, <laughs> and uh, we went and got you a bucket of chicken at KFC. And I was like, "Damn, she's really happy about this." Yeah, but you had to tell the person that yeah. took the order how you were specifically there to get your wife a bucket of chicken. Picking you said it no less than five times. Bucket of chicken for my wife. I actually find Ezel's chicken to be a little better. Yeah, it is. There are several chicken places in the Portland metropolitan area that do it better than KFC. Did you know that? Mm. I mean, KFC's, you know, it's a standard. I actually find the gravy and biscuits at KFC irresistible. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, 54% of the time, I find the chicken irresistible. So, I don't know what their standard is. It really just depends on how hungry I am. But when you're craving KFC, are you really just craving salt? No, I like the chicken. I mean, I like Popeyes, too. I'm really, Mm. you know. I'm not a big Popeyes guy. No? I find uh, the breading at Popeyes to be over the top. Really? It needs to be more about the chicken Uh for me. You know? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, By the way, did you hear... I'm starving. Did you hear Pat McAfee's... Apology? No, no. Can I play it? Yes, I want okay, to hear so this. So people who don't know the full story, uh, I'm not going to take credit for Pat McAfee apologizing because I think a lot of people were all over him, but I wrote today at johnconzano.com that Pat McAfee's a bully. And what's next? He's going to drive by an elementary school and make fun of kids who like math? Like, you know, he's just his whole act in the last two weeks as it pertains to Washington State is a bad look. Well, Pat McAfee has come to Jesus, so to speak. Tell me if this is an apology and if it's good enough. But through learning why they were so upset about Lee Corso's joke about them, they think their football program is going to be gone after this year. I had no idea that that was Whoa. an actual fear. That is what they are actually – I think they are very, very worried because Oregon State and Washington State are the only ones that haven't had a home since – I. Blame my naivety. Is that a word? Yeah, naivete. Naivete, whatever it is. I didn't even think about that being the case. Like, hey, you got a great football team. Your fan base, obviously, very passionate. I've been seeing that in there. They seem to believe that there's a chance their football program is going to be, like, they're not going to exist anymore. Now, is that Lee Corso's fault for making a joke? Is that game day who's put the wazoo flag up there for 20 years' fault? Or is that potentially AD president commissioner's fault? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, not the fans' fault. So I would like to let the Washington State fans that I've heard you, what you have said, I'm sticking up for my guys. We'll do that to the day I'm in an actual coffin. I thought you guys sounded like ingrates the way you were attacking Lee. But the only reason they were doing that is because they legitimately think that there's a chance that they don't have a program anymore. So I would like to propose this. Hey, Oregon State wazoo. Let's get to the Big 12. Yes, yeah, seriously. Come into the Big 12. There has to be some conference that would like these two teams to join them. I didn't even think about thinking about them not existing anymore, but that's where their fans are right now. I, that never even crossed my mind. So I would like to apologize for potentially feeding to the narrative that you guys aren't going to exist, but that is not how I view it at all. you got a good football team, great fan base. 2023, somebody is going to bring you in. I just didn't appreciate you attacking 88-year-old man Kirk Herbstreet mm-hmm. and game day that has put your team over forever, so I apologize for that to the Wazoo fan. Is that a real apology? It's enough. It's enough. I get it. Kind of an apology. No, no, no. He said more than actually I expected. So I, I mean, I'd be curious to know the wazoo fans reaction to that and what they think on a scale of one to ten though Anna, how would you grade it i gave it a four and a half Ooh, really yeah he's he's a hard grader though yeah huh he's a really you're married though i mean you know what married apologies sound like right oh yeah i do i do Talking about. I also have learned to uh, pick my battles, so you know. Right. Um, I think the best part of that is when he thinks Oregon State and Washington State to the Big Twelve, like he's the first person who's proposed that. <laughs> you know, like, hey, how about this? Anybody thought of this? <laughs> you know, like, come on, come on, McAfee. That'll fix it. It's so easy. Just put him in the conference. Come on, <laughs> or or. 
that he doesn't know naivety or naivete. That's fine. Yeah, that's, no, that's come okay. on. That's okay. But but the but the the irony is, you you got to be a little naive to not know how to say naivete. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Dre, Dre is called in. Dre, what's going on? Jay, you can be realistic and have low expectations behind closed doors. Okay. But but you can't put that on the players, and you can't put that on the fans. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. My daughter played on a fourth-grade basketball team. When we went to practice every day, I'm telling those girls, we can win the championship. I'm telling the parents, we can do this. But then when I got home and I talked to my wife, I let her know, <laughs> we are horrible. <laughs> it's not happening, is it? Oh, man. Oh, I love that. Did he just hang up? Yeah, that's what he does. <laughs> he just mic drops. Okay, he's done. He said just... what he needed to say. He's so right, though. Yeah. That's the perfect analogy. You can't get away with that, though, in the real world, like, by yourself. Like, you can't go into the gym and put 275 pounds on the bench press and go, I can lift this, and then get underneath it and actually try to take it off the rack because it'll just land on you and crush you. (laughs) But you can do that in your sports world. And he's right in that you, as a sports executive, you can never say or should never say, (laughs) 54% is our goal. All right, Anna, we're going to do the five at five, the five biggest stories in sports. Let's do it. The five at five. The number one story, as Anna sees it, is? Oh, Andrew Nemec over at SP Live Sports uh, has a doozy of a story. Let's just say the headline says, Spygate in Oregon High School Football. Wife of Tigered coach accused of filming Lake Ridge practice. Oh, boy. Subhead, OSAA has been notified of the incident. And there's video. Uh, A confrontation at Lake Ridge High School could make this uh, matchup between Lake Ridge and Tigered on Thursday pretty interesting. So during Tuesday's football practice at Lake Ridge High... Sources tell Nemec that several individuals spotted a woman possibly recording football practice. Multiple players, Nemec says, with Lakeridge, recognized the woman as Corey Feist, the wife of Tigered interim coach Ken Feist and mother of Tigered starting quarterback Jake Feist. The recording shows coach Spencer Phillips of Lakeridge accusing Feist of filming Lakeridge practice, asking to see and delete the video <laughs> on her phone. Feist denies filming practice and says she's there for her daughter's event, and she refuses to show Phillips her phone. Nemec uh, confirmed that other events were taking place at Lakeridge that evening. Two sources said that they were alarmed by Feist's extended presence at Lakeridge's football practice with be her there. phone. She shouldn't Not be there. Not so discreetly turning toward the field. Only person who approves of this is Bill Belichick, who you know thinks this is a really good idea. But I can't decide. On one hand, I think it's terrible that she was there. I think it's bad form. It's a bad look. It looks bad for her. Looks bad for Tiger. But. Could you also argue that that's a good mom? You know, could you argue that in the same breath? I mean, how bad? How big of offense is this, Stephen? I mean, it's pretty bad. Uh, you know, you can't have your mom out there, you know, recording stuff. But you know what? 
she is all in, right? She's all in for the team, all in for her son. So for that, you know what? As a parent, I'm good with that. She's a big fan. Yeah. Number two story, Anna. Go ahead. Uh, Marshawn Lynch is talking about what happened with Russell Wilson. I just thought this was interesting because it's somewhat local. He's talking about why it was that, uh, you know, the relationship broke down so much. He's telling this story on a podcast where he said, like, basically Russell Wilson was put on a pedestal and it really made having a relationship with him difficult. I've got the audio of Marshawn Lynch talking with Shannon Sharp about Russell Wilson. Look, man, I'm going to tell you straight up. I'm, I'm, I'm not the, I wouldn't be the, the, the right person to, to speak on their relationship because I didn't, like, I didn't, I didn't f*** with them. You feel what I'm saying? So You didn't mess with who? I didn't f*** with, with Pete. Uh-huh. And then, I mean, you know, Russ was, like, just a quarterback for me. Right. You know what I mean? So it wasn't as... We you didn't have, have no relationship. You didn't have no kind of a relationship. Y'all didn't. Y'all didn't like go to a go go to a party. Y'all didn't get together. Y'all didn't do it. Y'all didn't kick it like that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, even seven. I mean, seven would come to the room. Club Shay, you know, Club Shay Shay started in like a training camp in Denver. John would come to the room. We drank beer. We played cards. We rolled dice. The guys played video games. We laugh and shoot the ish. We had that type of relationship with him. Shannon Sharp talking about his relationship with John Elway. Apparently, Russell Wilson not spending time, effort, or energy with Marshawn Lynch. And later on in that interview, I'm sorry, Anna, Marshawn was saying how after one of the games, Russell didn't have a good game. And so he went to the player personnel uh, person, asked for his number, and uh, he said, okay, Russ will call you. And so he, Russ calls him, but he didn't have, it was all a blocked number. And Marshawn goes, well, did you give my number? And he goes, yeah, it was that blocked number that called you. And he's like, okay, cool. Like, why is he? Why does he have to block his number for me? So he never actually got his phone number either to like get in contact to have a conversation with with him. Wow. And not only that, like Pete Carroll apparently, according to him, said, like Richard Sherman was trying to hold Russell accountable with the situation in practice, and Carroll told them, no, 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 nobody go talk to Russell. If anybody's got something to say to him, come talk to me. Come talk to the quarterbacks coach. Nobody go and talk to him. Like, that's just a that's a terrible dynamic. It is a bad dynamic. I understand, like, Russell Wilson. There's a star system in every locker room. Okay, star players get different rules, treated different. You know, Barry Bonds, when I covered the Giants, Barry Bonds had two lockers, okay? And he had an easy chair and his own TV. Everybody else had a stool and one locker and shared a TV. Like, there's a star system, but you can't have the quarterback that alienated from the rest of the team and holding himself to a standard that, like, is so ridiculously elitist that he doesn't even feel like he's part of the team. It's just counterproductive, really. Number three, go. This one's a little off the wall, but I'm amused by it. South Korea's roller skating team came up short at the Asian Games. Yes, it's a speed roller skating team. Their anchor celebrated a second too early and allowed his Taiwanese opponent to catch him at the finish line. I didn't even know Taiwan was involved in this until I started reading the story, so it's not my Taiwan basis. But the heartbreaking moment came during the home stretch of the men's 3,000-meter relay as that anchor... Made the final turn. He thought he had the race won. 
but he started celebrating and he lifted his arms in exaltation oh, as he no. went across the finish line and that's when the other guy from Taiwan stretched out his skate to the finish and beat out the South Korea side by .01 seconds to win the gold. So basically, this story could be titled Joy in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but isn't there another element to the story? Because now the Korean athletes have to serve in the military like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that the next part of this? Like yeah. P.S. For the South Korean team, there's way more than a gold medal on the line. South Korean athletes can earn exemptions from the country's mandatory military service <laughs> by winning a gold medal at the Asian Games or at any medal at the Olympics. So now they have to go serve in the military. Yeah. Oh, that guy's a goat. You know, there's, there's uh, letting a ground ball go through your legs to lose the World Series. And there's, oh, I have to take live fire in a possible combat situation because you celebrated too early on the roller rink. Ouch. Number four. Yeah, my five at five is real lighthearted today. Just just, just putting like that it. out there. I like it. Um, <laughs> Major League Baseball teams in the playoffs are creating new food concoctions. Um they are, for example, in Atlanta, putting out the chicken ain't nothing but a bird, bird blue sandwich. It has three glazed donuts, pickled Ooh. green tomatoes, and two fried chicken breasts topped off with some powdered sugar. Pass. I'll try that. Uh, Philadelphia has revealed the Schwar Burger. It's a gargantuan burger they put out to honor designated hitter Kyle Schwarber. It contains beef, smoked brisket, cheese, Ooh. bacon, onion rings, all on a burger you and had, a whole lot more. You had me at brisket. There's the walleye sliders, fried walleye sliders in Minnesota, a fried chicken sausage in Milwaukee, and some loaded mini corn dogs in Houston. Those don't sound as impressive as the Schwarberger or the chicken ate nothing but a bird blue sandwich. Houston sounds lazy. That's like a 54% effort there out of Houston. A corn dog? Come on. I'm really hungry now. Number five. I'm going to do it. Travis Kelsey says the NFL should pump the brakes with its Taylor Swift coverage. Thank you. He even, he is saying the league is overdoing it a little bit when it comes to his, to his relationship and Taylor Swift's attendance at his game. Um, by the way, the term for them combined is Tavis. No. Taylor and Travis. No, I don't like it. Tavis. He wants the league to chill out. I think. As do the rest of us. I don't I don't think they need to have a one name thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's out there. I just see I just think of it's he's a Swifty. He's the number one fan. You know? Mm -hmm. Good five at five. I like it. You lightened it up. The show got lighter because of it. I dropped a lot of other stories that had way more news value. Uh, it's interesting. Like, if you had to include one other story, you know, what was on the cutting room floor that you that maybe was more newsy? Well, I mean, LSU safety Gray Brooks Jr. was diagnosed with rare form of brain cancer. Okay. You know. That's sad. Yeah, yeah. It's very sad. You went with the food at the and Major I League Baseball I went with food. Stadium. I know. I and know. Taylor Swift. And Swifty. And Taylor Swift. 
I like it, though. <laughs> Jonathan Smith is coming up, Oregon State football coach. we got to talk about so much, including no. the fact that the guy <laughs> is a phenomenal charade player who signaled to his quarterback, milk the clock, by acting like he was milking a number of heifers on the sideline with his thumb and forefinger action. He was just milking it. This really is the happy hour. Jonathan Smith said that he was sorry. To whom was he apologizing? To the cows that are surrounding the Corvallis area? Farmers certainly were not uh, offended by his milking action. Maybe they were. No, I think they looked at it and went, he's milked a cow. Well, okay, I was going to say, if the form's bad, I mean, I'd be offended. It wasn't bad form. But John, 4-H John, says it wasn't bad form. His form was not embarrassing. <laughs> was he picturing a Holstein? What was he picturing? i got to ask him that. I'm going to ask him at least two questions about milk and the clock, plus some questions about cow. Plus, Justin Wilcox, Cal Coach, coming up on Friday's show. Want you here for all of it. Well, Oregon State will be traveling to Berkeley Saturday, 7 o'clock game on the Pac-12 Network. 4-1 Beavers. Still in the top 25. Coming off a, a nice win against Utah last Friday. I was there. I saw it. You saw it. There's been a lot of talk this week about Oregon State, and uh, Jonathan Smith is here to talk about it. We got us. How you doing, man? How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing solid, man. Curious to hear how. Uh, didn't you do the show Friday on, yeah. on site here? At, right was from it, the was it good, man? Good it, setup there for you. It, it, you. I like what you guys have done with the place. If you're asking, yeah. like, one. I have one beef though. In the press box, the windows are closed. You, I can't hear the crowd. I want them to open the windows, so I can oh, feel yeah. like I'm. I gotta feel like I'm at a stadium. You know what I mean? You were you were an assistant, you know, and you were at like Arizona State. Remember when you were in the box at Arizona State? Mm-hmm. How far away you feel and how quiet it is. It doesn't. You need to be at yep. a stadium. Yeah, it's kind of clinical in those press box cases. Well, as a coach, if you didn't have windows, I remember feeling the same thing up at UW. They had windows on the side, and sometimes you want them shut. You know, it gets so loud, but then you'd want to feel the energy of the crowd. And that's too bad you didn't get all the experience. Our crowd was rocking Friday night. I thought it was awesome. Uh, the place was jumping and 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 going. I got to tell you, I full confession. So I bought five tickets to the game, and my my wife and kids sat down in section 129. So I got to experience the game from the stadium. And you're right, it was loud. The kids were entertained. They loved the scoreboard and the lighting, and they they loved watching what was going on on the sideline. Uh, you guys are doing a good thing, and you're doing well on the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's turned into a great home field advantage, and and it's fun. Our guys play confident, and you know, the, hopefully, the fan experience, quality of play on the field, yes, but everything now that the with the stadium being complete and the lights, scoreboard going, sound, we're still grinding through. Got the chainsaw going on third down. It makes for fun nights. All right, so uh, i got to ask you about the game of charades you were playing right off the get. Uh, you, you're milking the clock at the end of the game. I don't have a problem with that. I I think it was highly entertaining. You know, you came out, you said you were sorry. Did you really get complaints about it, or are you just kind of preemptively saying, ah, you know, that wasn't the best look for me? And there he goes. 
We got him. Can we get him back? We've been ha- we've been having issues with the phones today. And uh, Jonathan Smith will get him right back. They are getting him back. See, every time it happens when I ask like a tough question. Earlier in the show, I asked a tough question of Sean Hyken. Are the Blazers going to have some injury problems? You know, this rookie, boom, he's gone. Jonathan Smith, you're doing the charade thing, and uh, we'll get him right back on. He's calling back in. This one's on us. I, I think this is our issue if this is happening with more than one phone. So uh, let's get him booted up, and hopefully this will not happen again during the Jonathan Smith interview. I'm ready for him. Are we ready to put, we're ready to put him on? Just put him on hold there, and I'll punch him right up. So uh, Jonathan Smith about to ask answer the burning question. So much anticipation for this, you know. I'm on like you know I'm on uh, the edge of my seat now. No, are we actually milking this right now? Are we milking this moment? You know, <laughs> is there is there a little bit of us uh, milking the moment, so to speak? So I got to know what's uh, what's happening here. So we will. Uh, We'll get Jonathan here. Appears to me that somebody's having a conversation with him. Am I wrong there, Stephen? Somebody talking to him? Yeah, we're uh, we're. On, I don't think we can quite reach him yet. We have called the number. Oh. I think we're maybe oh, okay. in the process of it. All right, we're in the process. Uh, all right, here. I think he is calling in himself. Let me ask here, Jonathan. Is that you? It is, man. I don't know what happened. My <laughs> landline or something must have well, kicked it. You know what I had to do right now? I was milking it for the last couple of minutes. You know, so yeah, and that was like perfect timing, right? You're asking me about this, and then all of a sudden my phone goes out. That wasn't intentional, but even the... I thought you hung up on me. No. All right, so was somebody? Was anybody really offended, or is that you just kind of being like, ah, it wasn't my best moment? Um, it sounded like that, uh, yeah, there were a few... Offended complaints that come Goodness. come our way, and again, look, I, it wasn't a good look. I, it wasn't even the signal, <laughs> to be honest with you. And so, yeah, it's not. It, it, and this is the truth. It's I wish it wasn't become such a spectacle because there's such a great football game to talk about, and I feel like yeah. it took away from that. Yeah, okay, but I still think that was a hell of a game of charades. You're good at it, and then I I grew up. I you know I don't know if you know this about me, but. You know, I was a 4-H'er, okay? I've milked a cow. And I noted that your thumb and forefinger action there suggests that you may have milked a cow in your life. Have you ever milked a cow? I have never milked a cow. I'll be, be totally honest now. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Let's go back to football. All right. Your team, 21-7. Defense was fantastic. It uh, didn't seem to matter if they had a passer out there or a runner out there. You guys, Trent Bray's defense was able to neutralize Utah. How good did that feel? Yeah, it felt great, and you know, and we did play play well. I do think the crowd, the defense affected the passer. Uh, I do want to say I got a bunch of respect. Cam Rising's a really good player. Seeing seeing him on the field and street clothes kind of. You know, feel for the guy because you know there is some difference. There were some guys that were open. They threw a couple of inaccurate balls. Could have been make the game different. And these games are tight, but we played at a high level defensively, physically. One to contain the run game did that. Uh, forced a you know some throw game that obviously went our way. Your quarterback play. You got Aiden Childs into the game. I liked it. He yeah, twenty three yard pass. 
the protection broke down on him a little bit later in that series. I was I wanted to see more of him, but will we see a little more of Aiden? You know, is that going to be a regular thing where he works in, or is that to be determined? You know, we're still working through it. We do like the idea of getting that out, getting him out there. We wanted to put him in some, you know, when it's real, real quality football, not just late in the game when you have a lead. That's what we've done previously, and so that was planned out. Yeah, and I, to get him in there, yeah, I did think he threw a strike on second down. Uh, protection did not help him out. Uh, but we just feel like the more opportunities we give him, that he can continue to you know, develop. He's got some talent. We're really confident in it. And so we'll just see how, how it goes moving forward. Again, this isn't a shot at DJ's uh, confidence anyway. It was, it was, I was so impressed with DJ. Was, we were talking to him in the middle of the week when we were thinking about doing this. And he started going talking about his true freshman year at Clemson, they had Trevor Lawrence playing, and they did something similar to get him in the game as a true freshman because they felt – like he was coming along, so it was awesome to hear that hear that from DJ and watching those two kind of work together at practice communication, even during the game. DJ's there helping out Aiden when he's in a little bit, vice versa. So we feel good about the quarterback setup there, and and we'll just see how we continue to play it out. I love on your first series, you ran kind of a little designed quarterback run. Looked like there was a little trap or something inside. He cut back against the grain. It was just a nice, a nice play from DJ. It softened the defense up a little bit. Are we going to see a little more DJ running, or is it case by case? It can be effective. Uh, you know, it's funny even talking. I remember it as a quarterback of like actually early in the game, jitters. It's not bad to kind of get hit or get you know some contact to run. I think DJ feels feels the same. So getting an early run call for him, I know he likes that. He's effective and. And, yeah, we definitely plan on calling, you know, I don't know about more, but continuing to call plays where he can use his legs. Yeah, I want to see him run 30 times, but, you know, three or four, not not a bad look. Silas Bolden, um, you know, he to me, he was the player of the game. He, he comes up with a couple of huge plays, and you need those, especially when your defense is playing so well. What did he mean to you guys? No, he was definitely player of the game. He was lights out. I mean, yeah, everyone's talking about the fourth and one fifty-yard run. I mean, yeah, he's fast. A lot of people could have done that. Even the fir- the first drive of the game. Okay, we go down and score. Well, it's third and ten. We throw a route underneath to Silas. He breaks a tackle, picks up the first down to extend that drive, and we get points. And then you know, third quarter, we're going to low up tempo. He takes a quick out, makes the guy miss on the sideline, then makes a safety miss for another touchdown. Uh, we're we're backed up. We're inside our own ten, third and eight. DJ throws a good ball, but it's a deep ball to Silas. He comes up, makes a big-time catch to get us out of bad field position. He he was, like I said, lights out, good player, and just hoping and continuing that he continues to do it. This game coming up against Cal, uh, defensively they've been good. Offensively they've struggled. What do you see on film? Yeah, I think on the offensive end, they, they've moved the ball a bunch. I mean, they're running a lot of plays. They're yardage, balanced. They could run the thing. You know, they... Really, they should have beat Auburn. That multiple opportunities in the red zone couldn't finish the deal, and that's that caught them a little bit in that one game. Because if you, you know, they're four and one if they handle business in the red zone. So I think they they're potent offensively. They can finish drives that really scary. Again, you're right, defensively sound, solid, make you earn it. Physical, uh, you know, Justin's been running that scheme for a long time. They do it at a high level. Yeah, when you encounter a guy like Justin, I mean, you, you've known him a long time. I, I want to say, you know, if you go back to maybe the first time you guys were on a field together, I mean, how many years ago are we talking? Yeah, what is that, 1998? Because he's playing for the Ducks, and I'm playing yeah. here, and we're on the field. He's a DB. I'm the quarterback. 
um, played a couple of years there. We we got so many in similar circles. We've never coached together, but there's a lot of connections through mostly Chris Peterson and that that realm. And so the offense, defense. He's at USC when we were at UW and playing there. And then obviously the last, I guess this will be year six, playing you know him and that scheme. So there's a lot of history. They always seem to have a game or two every year where. They just play lights out on defense, and so you you, you kind of have to guard against that. But how how are you feeling? How are you prepping this week? How how is it different, maybe schematically, than maybe the Utah game was, or, or are there big differences? Well, the scheme's a little different. Yeah, the, you know they'll play a little bit different fronts. Utah's pressures are a little bit different than what you know Justin Cal likes to do. Um, you know, obviously the personnel is different. Uh, they got some good, really good players in some different spots. Look at Cal and you know, the inside linebacker, Sermon's son. He's a good player, and they got some secondary coverage disguise that's really solid. So each week's a little bit different like that. But I'm with you. I mean, you watch Cal over the last few years. There's no question they don't pow down to anybody. They can play with anybody. They've had some tight wins against really good teams. Uh, they've got our full attention this weekend. I was really impressed with the way you guys came out of a loss. And you never, you know, obviously you want to win every game, but you came out of a loss and your guys showed up to play. Did you feel all week long leading into the Utah game that you had had good days of practice? It made sense to you? Or how, how hard is that when, you know, you go to a undefeated to a one loss team and now you got to regroup on a short week? Yeah, sometimes the short week might help you so you don't sit there and dwell on the thing. After a loss, I do think, especially on defense, they, these guys wanted to respond. I mean, it do, didn't play up to a standard of on that side of the ball in particular, especially in that first half against the two. So these guys are tromping to get back on the field, put in some work. I thought, I think you know the guys appreciated. It. I felt like we were smart physically with them through the week. You know, we only went one day in shoulder pads leading up to Utah, knowing the game was going to be physical. So I felt like they had a chip on their shoulder. They were fresh, back at home with the crowd. They were excited to play. Uh, you know, I'm going to Berkeley. I'll be there for your game. It, it is, I think, a challenging place sometimes to play because there isn't a lot of crowd noise. I know on some games you start to prepare for crowd noise and you know, play music. It, you know, I'm told that you're not doing that this week. Is that to simulate that there won't be a loud crowd there, or what are you doing? Yeah, a little bit. You know, just to change the pace of. The environment's going to feel a little bit different. We let them recognize, uh, and so we're trying to prep through the through the week to recognizing that. I will say, yeah, maybe the environment there might be a few empty seats. The crowd noise isn't as loud. The student section maybe not as good as some of the other road games we're going to play at. But the team we're going to play, and we're going to need to bring some serious energy and focus and physicality because um, that's who we're playing. Whatever environment we're in, we got to come out. Because I know Cal's going to be humming. If they're similar, so similar to us. Well, we're one and one. They're one and one. They're just coming off a home win. We're doing the same. We, you know, they got a lot in front of them too, and they have a lot to play for. And so, we're gonna have to play well down there. Yeah, and I, I get what you're saying. I, I also think it's like you know, if you work out every day and there's music in the gym, and you know you're going to a gym that's not going to have any music, it is a different environment. I don't think you mean any disrespect to Cal, and you know, I think just like you guys, those guys are fighting for wins. Uh, I, I'm excited to see the game. Um, you know, do you have a key to the game as you look at it? I know, like the pregame shows always talk about the key to the game today is, and they'll throw something out like the ability to run the ball. Or what? I mean, I always feel like, yeah, that's fundamental. Like you want to run the ball, but in your mind, let's just say this: 
I hand you the stat sheet after the game. What is the first stat you look at? Right. Yeah, well, it's going to be red zone, red zone touchdowns versus not for both sides. Hmm. You know, they such a separator there. And, again, they talked about Cal, the ability to move the ball. Can we, you know, slow them down in the red zone, keep them out of the end zone, vice versa for us? It's a good defense. Are we going to be able to get down there and finish drives? I think that will separate this game. I also think about special teams. You know, a couple games previous against Cal, there's been some type of play separating where the punt block. We had a punt return touchdown last year that really helped us out. So uh, special teams, red zone, would be big. All right, Jonathan Smith, thank you. In my opinion, you had nothing to apologize for on the game of charades. You'd be a first-round draft pick. (laughs) Yeah, you did feel like everyone kind of knew what I was trying to communicate. Yeah, I got it right away. I was like, oh, milk the clock. Um, yeah, but I get it. You know, like you don't want to, you don't want to go out of your way to offend anybody. But I just, uh, I give you, I'm giving you a pass on that one. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. There's a right. lot there, you know. You, and you think about these signals and what you're doing on the sideline. I no way am I thinking about, am I on camera right now? Right, right. You're just in the heat of the moment. The crowd was still loud. We're up big and all that, and we're trying to get it communicated to, to the offense. Anyhow, yep. Yeah, Nothing you better. should, you should have a reasonable expectation of privacy on the sideline as you're signaling in, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's 50,000 things going on in the stadium and you're going, okay, the important thing is you're trying to tell your quarterback, Hey, don't be in a hurry here. Yeah. When it was coming off of a penalty, there's a lot of mechanic to this thing. So it's first and 10. We're in the wrong formation. They call us the wrong formation. Back us up. It's first 15. Well, then they wind the game clock. Oftentimes, they don't wind the theme clock, so I want to make sure the offense was aware. Anyhow, so. Yeah. You got it done. All right. Congrats on the win. I will see you in Berkeley. Awesome. Thanks, John. All right. There he is, Jonathan Smith. (laughs) I had to ask. I actually thought he had milked a cow. I'm rather impressed that he still, if you look closely at the video, because I did, if you look closely at the video, He's actually doing what a farmer would do. You're kind of rolling the thumb over where, uh, you know, the teat would be. (laughs) You're rolling it out. It's like you're removing the toothpaste from the tube with one hand. You know, you can't just grab it and squeeze. Jonathan Smith doing a really good job. Plus, here's another thing. If you want to really talk about what he accomplished there, He's playing charades on the spot in front of 50,000 people. You know? Like, I think that was pretty impressive. Because he can't he's, he can't just yell out, milk the clock. Can't do that. He's trying to signal to his entire offense, like, don't be in a hurry here. I guess he could have pointed at his watch and said, like, slow down. That would have been fine. I can't believe he actually got a complaint. Like, somebody was offended by that? Who was offended by this? I want to know, if you were legitimately offended by Jonathan Smith's milk-the-clock gesture at Sat- or Friday night's game, you were up at 10 o'clock at night, and you went, oh, good heavens, I can't believe what I just saw on my TV. Guy doing a milking gesture, and that caused you to what? Pick up the phone and call Oregon State and say, I will never, ever... Write a check to you again, and I'm not coming to a game, and my donations are drying up. Don't even get me started. Leave it here. You got the BFT.
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Sailing along, we got a great show on tap tomorrow. Should get a visit from Anthony Gold, Oregon Statewide Receiver, on tomorrow's show. Also Friday, Justin Wilcox, Cal football coach, will be with us. Jonathan Smith was fantastic a little bit ago. I like the fact that uh, he he took on the uh, controversial subject of the week. Uh, I need to see them play better against Cal on the offensive side. I think that's a tall task, given that Cal is a pretty good defensive team. I will give my official picks for the Pac-12 games tomorrow at johnconzano.com. I will have those officially in writing, locked in. Steven and I are going to play a fun game that we play every week on the show next. It is called Fun Fact or Nah. Are you ready to play Fun Fact or Nah? Always. As it pertains to week six. It's always a great time to play Fun Fact or Nah. All right. Fun Fact or Nah from the Pac-12 Research team, Greg of the Pac-12 research team, puts these together. I'll start with Arizona. Arizona wide receiver Jacob Cowing is just 72 receiving yards away from getting to 4,000 in his career. Would make him the first receiver in college football since James Washington in 2017 to cross 4,000 receiving yards. Fun fact or not? Uh, I'll go with nah. It was close, but it's just, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little out there for me. I mean, some James Washington, it's not like he's a big time name. You know, Oklahoma State, I remember him. But, uh, 4,000 is a good number. But when they threw the 2017 and James Washington, it made it go nah for me. Yeah, James Washington, uh, Fred Blitnikoff Award winner, by the way, in 2017. He's kind of bounced around. In the NFL with the Colts, the Steelers, Saints released him. It would be a bigger deal to me if this were like first receiver since, you know, Terrell Owens to get 4,000 yards. It, I agree with you. It falls in the nah category for me. Arizona State. Cam Scatabos, three pass completions this season, are tied with fellow Sun Devil Kalen Ballage from 2016. For the most single-season pass completions by a Pac-12 running back in history, um, I'm going to go. With, that's a fun fact because it's the history of the Pac-12. I mean, we talked about uh, him throwing passes against USC. They just kept running halfback passes with him. They did it again against Cal. Yeah, I'll give it fun fact. I'm going to raise an objection here. I want to reach out to Greg in the Pac-12 research team. I believe this is a erroneous fact. Oh. Fun fact, not or erroneous. Do you do you classify Jack Coletto as a running back? Ooh. If you yeah, do, I mean, if you do, I think he completed more than three passes in a season. Had to have, right? I think there's a I think there's a mistake by the Pac-12 research but team. I'm gonna go with nah. You talked me out of it. I don't know though. I mean, but do you like if Coletto lined up in the Wildcat formation? Isn't he, is he a quarterback or a running back? You know what I mean? Yeah, because he's is he the Wildcat quarterback? I guess is that what you would call it? I'm gonna I gotta I'm gonna look this up after the show, but I just kind of I recall him throwing passes. 
I'm sure he had more than three completions. Because the quarterback was always on the field. Yeah. So, yeah, he's not, he's technically not the quarterback in that situation. I don't know. Here's another one. Cal. Only Western Kentucky has more takeaways through five games than Cal. Fun fact or not? Uh, I'm going to go with not. Nah. I'm pretty sure this is the third week in a row they've gone turnover stat with Cal. So uh, <laughs> I knew that the last two weeks, so nah. It's all they got going for them right now. Uh, they have 13 takeaways, second in the country to Western Kentucky. Colorado. This is uh, Omarion Miller. 196 receiving yards. Tied for the most for an FBS player in the first game of their career in which they recorded one reception. By the way, also the most receiving yards for a Pac-12 true freshman since Marquise Lee had 224 versus UCLA in 2011. Fun Ooh. fact or not? That's fun fact. Uh, I like I like all that stuff. Uh, I liked every part of it. So, yeah, I'll go fun fact on that one. I think it's solid. I'm surprised that it's tied at 196 yards. I think it's such a, a strange thing that he got to 196 and not more. Uh, Oregon is next. Oregon's on a bye. But did you know that ducklings younger than 10 days will swim and walk as a group, always close to their mother, to avoid the attack of predators. Fun fact or not? Oh, that's a fun fact. I mean, they're just, uh, you know, the real family family vibe. I did know they have a big, uh, they're big big into the family stuff, the ducks. I, so. can't, I, I, think, I say nah. This is football. Why are you talking to me about ducklings? Oregon State allowed 198 yards to Utah. It was the first time since the 2001 Fiesta Bowl against Notre Dame that the Beavs held a top 10 team under 200 total yards. Fun fact or nah? Nah, there, there's more to that because there's the Nate Johnson, him getting hurt. I'm going to go with nah on that one. I'll say nah as well because I don't know how many teams they played that were ranked in the top 10. Just seems like a weird stat. Um, here you go. UCLA is one of six teams that have held opponents to 11 points per game or fewer. Bruins are also first in the Pac-12 in red zone scoring defense. Fun fact or not? That's fun. I'll go fun fact. I think it's interesting, and it's a strength against strength clash as Washington State is one of the better teams in the red zone offensively this season. All right, we'll continue this on tomorrow's show because we're running out of real estate. But uh, I'll have an answer on the Jack Coletto front. See if uh, I was right about that. We're back tomorrow with another great show.